Welcome to the Mind and Matter Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Jacomis, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Manoj Das. Manoj is a postdoctoral research fellow at the Johns Hopkins Center for Psychedelic and Consciousness Research. He studies the effects on memory of different classes of psychoactive drugs, and we talked all about the effect of drugs on memory. We talked about different ways that memories are formed and consolidated and recalled in our minds and in our brains. We talked about the effects of drugs ranging from MDMA to psychedelics to THC and cannabinoids to alcohol and sedatives on memory in the human brain. Towards the end, we also discussed some of the latest research on psilocybin and its functional impacts on the brain and how Manoj thinks about that. So if you're interested in psychoactive drugs and different types of drugs and how they impact the human brain and in particular how they impact memory, this will be an interesting episode for you. As always, if you enjoy the content on this podcast, please like, share, and subscribe wherever you're listening. That could be on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or another audio podcast directory. That could be on the video version on YouTube. And don't forget to subscribe to my free weekly newsletter at mindandmatter.com. You'll gain access to what upcoming guests and episodes will be about, content I'm writing on my Substack, and other interesting research highlights that I share with folks. And you can also sign up to be a paid subscriber if you want early access to episodes and to support the podcast even further. This episode is supported in part by Athletic Greens. Their main product, AG1, is a comprehensive and convenient daily nutrition product containing 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients with less than one gram of sugar per serving, no nasty chemicals or artificial anything. It's gluten and dairy free and compatible with paleo, vegan, vegetarian, and ketogenic diets. AG1 is a quick and convenient way to supplement your diet to help ensure your body is getting the nutrients it needs. It comes in powder form and you can make Mix it in water and drink it, or you can put it into a smoothie or a shake or something like that. I mix it into water and drink it with the first meal of each day, and it's super convenient. If you go to athleticgreens.com slash mindandmatter, Athletic Greens will give you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Their vitamin D product comes in tincture form, so you just take one drop each day. A large fraction of the population is actually vitamin D deficient, especially in winter months when we get less sun exposure, and vitamin D is super important for the proper function of the immune system and for a variety of other things. And there's even evidence indicating that vitamin D deficiency is correlated with more severe cases of COVID-19 in those who get infected. Every time I go into the doctor each year for a checkup, I'm always told that vitamin D deficiency is very common and I should be supplementing on a daily basis. So visit athleticgreens.com slash mindedmatter or click the link in the episode description. You'll get a free one-year supply of vitamin D with your first purchase. Today's show is brought to you in part by Dosist, an all-natural cannabis company specializing in dose-controlled cannabis products made with plant-based ingredients. To learn more about Dosist, their products, and where they are available, please visit their website through the link in the episode description. And with that, here's my conversation with Dr. Manoj Das. Manoj Das, thank you for joining me. Thanks for uh, having me on here. Can you start off by just describing for everyone who you are and what your scientific background is? Yeah, so um, I'm a postdoc uh, at the Center for Psychedelic and Consciousness Research at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. 
Um, my background is essentially in, in psychopharmacology or neuropsychopharmacology and cognitive neuroscience. So I kind of, uh, I call it cognitive neuropsychopharmacology just to be complicated. And um, yeah, my training is really in episodic memory research and um, psychoactive drugs, although now I've sort of focused on psychedelics and other hallucinogens. Um, but, you know, broadly speaking, yeah, my interests are in just various psychoactive drugs and how they impact cognition, especially uh, uh, episodic memory. So let's, um, let's break down some of the terminology for people before we get into memory stuff. So psychopharmacology, what is that? Uh, I mean, I think this could mean a lot of things, but a lot of times people will probably refer to how it impacts behavior, uh, how drugs impact behavior. Um, and so, or not, it doesn't even necessarily have to be, you could even look at like the neurotransmitters and how those impact behavior or cognition. So how they affect the mind. And a lot of times from behavior, we can then use that as a readout to infer what's going on in the mind. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's that's approximately what some people would refer to as psychopharmacology. Um, episodic memory, I think that was probably one of the things that, you know, I should probably define. So um, there's been some, you know, debate these days as to how to really uh, section up um, different aspects of memory. And I think it really helps to describe some other aspects of memory in order to kind of contextualize what episodic memory is um, or what we think it might be. But so Endel Tolving, he um, kind of came up with this distinction between episodic memory and semantic memory. So episodic memory is the, is what he refers to as like mental time travel. It's um, reliving, uh, re-experiencing um, an event or information from the past. Um, whereas semantic memory is more kind of your fact-based information. So to give you, a, I think, you know, an example people will always use is that you might remember, uh, you might know that George Washington was the first president of the country, of the U United States, but you don't remember where and when you learned that information. So you have the semantic memory, but you don't have the episodic memory. And it does kind of become tricky as to, you know, what is uh, semantic and what's episodic because not everybody has the same types of semantic memory. So I might, it might be a fact to me that I grew up in Texas, but obviously that's not a fact, factual information to other people. And I think one way people have kind of distinguished these things is if you take out certain regions of the brain that tend to be particularly important to episodic memory, does the memory of some of this semantic-like information still remain? And so people could show that if you take out the hippocampus, people might still know uh, where they grew up, which in other words, that information has become kind of semanticized, but it might be kind of um, devoid of certain details like... Um, you know, really, really certain detailed information, like where specifically in uh, uh, the city your house was, or, uh, you know, specific details of the house, like colors and whatnot. So, I mean, it's, it's certainly not a, a perfect distinction, but um, both of these memory types of memories can also be distinguished from other types of memories, such as uh, fear conditioning, or kind of reward learning, which seems to be kind of more automatic. Um, so for example, certain things might automatically trigger you uh, and, and make your, your, your skin crawl. Um, and that's not that's due to a memory that's there, but it's not necessarily strictly due to the episodic memory. But again, all these things sort of interact and it's, it's not a perfect uh, uh, splitting up of the systems, but episodic memory is typically what we think of as the human sort of reliving of information from the past. Yeah, it's it's always a little tricky to uh, to disentangle how much of these things, how much of this is, is semantic. When we talk about different forms of memory, how much of it, how much of it is just sort of a, a linguistic convenience for us, 
versus um, you know really being able to tie different forms of memory to distinct underlying biological mechanisms. Right. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think, and I think that's kind of what the good thing about episodic memory is. And I'm going to double back on the statement in a second when we probably talk about some of my work, but one idea with episodic memory is that, you know, you, it is somewhat reliant on the hippocampus. And so, um, you know, without, without the hippocampus, you're not going to be able to encode uh, new episodic memories and even retrieving memories. Although people will say, you know, you get um, some amount of retrograde amnesia. So in other words, information before your hippocampus was taken out, maybe from the first two years before, maybe some of that will be gone, but you do have these episodic memories of the past. And more recently, people have argued that actually, well, those memories that these amnesic, these hippocampal amnesic patients have are not quite episodic. They don't really, they tend to be more semanticized. They tend to be kind of ambiguous, vague, and um, you know, not as specific as somebody who might have a hippocampus and can uh, uh, kind of recreate some of that information of the past and use that information to give you more kind of details. And I mean, I think that what's also important is that all memory is kind of, at least episodic memory is kind of a reconstructive process. And by having something like a hippocampus and filling in gaps that should be there, we might also be, uh, um, Allowing ourselves, allowing our memories to become distorted too, and I mean, there's some evidence actually that patients with amnesia might not have as distorted memories of the past of the things that they can remember that are semanticized. Um, so, yeah, I mean, when it comes to things like you know fear conditioning, I think it's you can show that, for example, the amygdala seems to be pretty important for that. Without an amygdala, it can be difficult to fear condition somebody um, with with something like procedural learning. So this would be like learning to ride a bike. You can. Uh, in fact, people have done the studies with, with hippocampal patients, and I think they'll do mirror drawing. So if you can, if all you can see is, is the mirror and your hand drawing what's in the mirror, it can be quite difficult to, to, to learn to do that skill. Um, you know, you have to do everything kind of backwards and map on what's going on in the mirror to your hand. And um, what's interesting is I think amnesic patients can learn that task over, you know, a few sessions, just like your average person. I don't even, I don't even know if their rate of learning is that much slower. Um, but more than likely, my guess is by the 10th session, they're, you know, they're going to be like, man, I'm pretty good at this for doing it for the first time, even though they, because they can't rep- remember the episode during which they were performing this task, um, during which they were getting practice, the multiple episodes. So there's, you know, kind of a, uh, I think that when it comes to the brain, I mean, this is one situation, which I think the brain does a decent job at kind of parsing up what we know about the mind. I've, I've argued a lot that maybe I've argued a lot, maybe more recently, I've argued that, for example, fMRI hasn't really taught us that much, as much as we think we know about the mind. And that a lot of the things that we've gotten from fMRI aren't even necessary, that we could have done all these things without it, um, just using, you know, sophisticated behavioral paradigms. But um, the brain knowledge here really does kind of constrain some of the, the what we know. And I think it's, uh, yeah, I mean, I think this is, this is a situation where it's not perfect. Again, all these systems interact and there's ideas of statistical learning and the hippocampus can perform statistical learning. And that's not exactly an episodic memory by any means. So not perfect, but um, I think it, it, it's not a bad distinction for now. Yeah. So, so before we dig into memory stuff and the effects of drugs, let's unpack uh, a few more things for people. So one thing that I think is really important to go over up front here are the sort of different phases of memory. So people often distinguish between encoding, consolidation, and retrieval. So can you unpack and describe what those are for people? 
Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up <laughs> because that's become a huge part of my work from even back at my my uh, PhD work. So um, yeah, so encoding is essentially the formation of memory traces, although you know it's still kind of um, you know you might still be forming them when you retrieve them as well. But it's the idea that you're you're taking information in and coding them in some ways such that the brain can subsequently represent them. Um, you could say it's the learning phase even, but the word learning is sort of a, a especially used more by non-episodic memory researchers. And so, you know, encoding is kind of, I think the, the word that uh, for any type of memory, you could say that you're, you're encoding something. Um, consolidation. So there's two meanings of the word consolidation. And um, I'm more using it in terms of the cellular term, the cellular version of it, rather than the systems version. So cellular consolidation is essentially uh, the phase after which so synapses can be strengthened or weakened. And then there's there's a maybe an hour to six hours, something along those lines, during which they need to be stabilized. And so that's what some people refer to as cellular consolidation. Um, or synaptic consolidation. And a lot of times you can administer a drug immediately after encoding and you can mess with this consolidation process. So that's probably going to be more related to cellular consolidation. There is this idea of systems consolidation and systems consolidation is more of this idea that you're transferring memories from a temporary store to a more permanent store. So for example, um, the, the hippocampus, it encodes memories and I was talking about this idea of memories becoming semanticized um, over time, how they can be less episodic and more kind of fact-like. And that if you take your hippocampus out, you'll still have it. That's the idea of transferring memories from the hippocampus to the cortex. Now, there's been recent uh, disagreement as to whether or not systems consolidation even exists. Part of the debate is whether or not those memories are qualitatively the same without the hippocampus. So the idea is that essentially you have the hippocampus that points out, it points to various regions of the cortex, sort of like an index. And the memories are really coming from, I guess you might say the cortex or the experiences of those memories of the cortex, but the hippocampus kind of binds everything together. And after you activate these memories enough over time, they can become independent of the hippocampus. Um, and so some will say, well, they're independent of the hippocampus, but they're still basically the same. And so others have now argued that, no, that's not true. And that really one reason um, that memories can essentially slip away or, you know, it's not that they don't get consolidated is rather there's an interference that has to do with the context, um, contextual interference. And this is like going way deeper into the wormhole than I probably was initially wanting to go into. But um, yeah, I, I don't know about semantic memory and anything that I talk about here about enhancing, for example, memory from post-encoding drugs is really I'm talking about cellular consolidation and not whether or not these memories are becoming more semanticized and whether or not they're transferring from the hippocampus to the cortex or not. Um, and then lastly, there's retrieval. So retrieval is when you're retrieving a memory. So when you're, you're, you're remembering something. And so the, you know, one of the big points here when you're talking about drugs and different phases, this is, this is a problem that's existed throughout like psychopharmacology research since, you know, for a while now. And it's, it's really unfortunate that um, such what seems like a, such a simple idea has become overlooked and people have missed really interesting effects. So you can get, administer a drug and then give somebody an encoding phase. And so you show them a bunch of stimuli like pictures, for example, I show you a picture of a bottle, I show you a picture of a, a card, I show you a picture of a, you know, a piece of paper, et cetera. And then later on, you can have some waiting period, you know, or you can test their memory immediately afterwards. But if you test the memory immediately afterwards, 
you know, you gave them a drug and it's impacting the encoding phase and you test their memory immediately afterwards, you're now going to be likely to impact the retrieval phase when their memories are going to be tested. You're also potentially affecting the consolidation phase. And it's hard not to impact the consolidation phase because most drug effects persist beyond this encoding phase, right? And so uh, what you can do at least to dissociate effects on consolidation is you can give people, you can show what happens when you give a drug immediately before encoding. And then you can show what happens when you give a drug immediately post encoding. And then again, if you test their memory immediately afterwards, you're going to run the risk of impacting the retrieval phase. So usually what you should do is probably have like a 24 hour or 48 hour delay, or even some people will do five days or one week. And then you're very unlikely to be impacting the retrieval phase because all the drug effects have washed out. Um, and then finally, you have your retrieval phase. And so you can have an encoding phase. If you give a drug immediately post-encoding, you're going to impact probably the consolidation phase. And then you test your memory. You're probably going to impact both the consolidation and retrieval phase. So instead, yeah, encode 48 hours later, test their memory. But before you test their memory, right before, give them a drug. And that is now going to impact strictly the retrieval phase. So I think there's been a lot of, uh, uh, I mean, I think I can, I can use the best example would be probably with cannabis. Um, well, or TA. Before, yeah. Before, yeah. before we go on to some of those examples, let's just kind of summarize for people. So yeah. encoding, consolidation, and retrieval. En encoding is basically you're learning something new. The information is being taken in by by your mind. Uh, the brain is doing something to encode that information, and it may or may not be consolidated. You may or may not remember it later. So you know, if you try mm -hmm. to teach me something, whatever that may be, I'll sit here and pay attention to it. I'll I'll learn it with the intention to to learn it, to try and remember it. I will then say, go home and uh, sleep on it overnight. The next day, I may or may not re remember everything I learned. Some of it I may remember, some of it I may not. That general process, which is usually happening in the hours after you learn it, is called consolidation and involves the strengthening or and or weakening of synapses, basically. And that will, at least in part, determine whether or not what you originally encoded stays in memory, i.e. it's been consolidated. Yeah, it's been, I mean, it's, I think it's more the stabilization of the strengthening and weakening of synapses, but yeah, exactly. Um, and it's also the case that you can also just not encode things and not remember them for that reason. But we do try to have people perform certain tasks during the encoding phase to make sure that they were, the stimuli were attended to. Um, and, you know, this is, this is actually a, a, a criticism from people who don't like experimental psychology. They'll say, you give people a drug and it's garbage in, garbage out. And it's like, you know, they're just generalized. They, they report, they, it's funny because some of these people will say with psychedelics, there's generalized disengagement. That's probably true of all drugs. Like this is what I refer to as psychedelic myopia. I think that all drugs will probably make people somewhat disengaged, but we do try to have them perform certain tasks during coding to make sure that they were encoded. And then, as you said, then it's the issue of how well do they consolidate later. And a lot of times there's an interaction between encoding and consolidation, but then, yeah. Uh, keep going. And then your last phase would be retrieval, right? Yeah. 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 So, so in a lot of the work that, that you've done and others have done that we'll talk about, right, there's this, um, there's this challenge of, okay, if you want to understand how a particular kind of drug affects memory, you've got to be careful about if you're giving the drug, you know, early or later in the learning process, are you giving it during encoding? Are you giving it during consolidation? Are you giving it during retrieval on a subsequent day, say, and part of the challenge there is that the drugs are, you know, if you give someone a drug, whether it's a sedative or a stimulant or whatever that we'll talk about, they will tend to be in your system for hours at a time. So you have to be very careful about when you administer that drug, whether it's at the beginning during encoding, whether it's during the consolidation phase. And that, that's basically what you're starting to say, right? 
Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. And I mean, sometimes I think it's impossible to decouple encoding from consolidation, for example. Even if your drug wears off halfway through the encoding phase, it was still on board during the first half of the stimuli that you showed somebody. Um, unless you, like, I think like optogenetics probably in animals would be the one way to differentiate things where you can literally just turn it on, turn on a set of neurons, for example, you know, in the moment that something is being encoded and then immediately silence it. Um, But that's, you know, that's not something we can do in humans. But as I said, you know, I think you can do, um, you can see what happens when you strictly impact something like consolidation to show that, hey, look, the effect is far different from what we get when we administer something during encoding. And then um, you can say that, okay, here's what happens in coding. Here's this completely different effect that we get at consolidation. These are dissociable. I see. So we'll, we'll speak a lot about episodic memory in particular. And just as a reminder, I think you said episodic memory is basically the, I, the it, it's tied to the ability to do um, basically mental time travel, to remember where you were, when you were. So there's a sort of spatial and temporal quality to it that you can you, you put yourself in some time in the past when you learn something or project yourself into the future and things like this. Oh, one second. My partner's asking me a question. I know that this is. <laughs> cool. I'm back. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, okay. Uh, yeah. So yeah, that's exactly what it is. It's mental time travel. It's the reliving of information from the past to be differentiated from something like yeah, procedural learning where you can learn to ride a bike and you know, in fact, a lot of times I think people have shown that if you try to use episodic memory for certain skills, um, like, okay, if I, I swung last time a little bit in the wrong direction, if I just go a little bit higher and you're a pro at this, you can actually um, make yourself worse. A lot of times you should rely on your procedural memory system and not use your episodic system, at least for um, professionals in some of these, these sorts of areas. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, no, I think I think that's um, that last thing you said is probably intuitive to a lot of people, right? The idea of uh, you're learning a new skill or you're using a skill that you already know. Uh, the the idea of overthinking it, right? Yeah, <laughs> and I think I, you know it, it is interesting because I think it's Anna Shapiro who was showing that with certain types of motor learning that you initially, when you're learning them, you do use something like the hippocampus. Um, whether or not you're actually explicitly using episodic memory is probably unclear in a task like that. But my guess is when you're initially learning, you are kind of, you're using it a little bit more, but when you get better at it, it might start to interfere And exactly. It's like you're overthinking it. And there's probably certain stages throughout of learning where sometimes use it, sometimes don't. And then, you know, eventually it becomes this trade-off and then eventually you probably shouldn't use it much at all. Um, but yeah, you know, here I'll be talking about episodic memory. And I guess just to complicate things further, there's going to be two types, uh, two processes we think about in episodic memory. And um, what, one of them is, is recollection, which I think is more of our standard way of thinking about uh, uh, retrieving information from the past. So where and when information, um, you know, so I might, for example, see, see you one day at a conference and I'm going to think to myself, uh, you know, I've, uh, you know, I've, I can remember that I met you on this podcast. I can, you know, that you had the uh, PCAL and TCAL in the back, in your back room. I can remember that you did your PhD in 2016, et cetera, et cetera. And these are all details of rec- recollections that um, I can, you know, uh, uh, recapitulate from, you know, when I, when I initially encoded them. Um, familiarity, though, is this weird sort of form of memory you might think 
it kind of sits between almost semantic memory and episodic memory. It's almost like the recent activation of a semantic memory or perhaps even certain perceptual features. Um, and so it's more of just this feeling of knowing without um, having any kind of corroborating evidence. And typically these things co-occur, familiarity and recollection. And I think that sometimes the way I describe familiarity might not necessarily be the same way that other dual process theorists describe familiarity. So, um, you know, don't, don't take my word for exactly what it is, you know, to go do your own research. But um, familiarity is, is this feeling of knowing. And so, um, so, you know, one distinguishing thing that Tolving said was that um, episodic memory involves autonoetic consciousness. So placing yourself in, you know, a, a given situation. And this could be even autonoetic consciousness can even be, for example, future simulation. So thinking about what you'll do in the future and placing yourself in that situation where semantic memory is is doesn't involve the sense of self. Right. It involves this kind of universal fact. Um and so familiarity is also, if you ask me, involved in basically this noetic consciousness, this feeling of knowing that something is there without any kind of corroborating evidence. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, what's interesting is that people what's under psychedelics, they talk about, you know, the self being dissolved, but then yet there being this noetic quality. And um, as we'll discuss, to some degree, recollections impaired under psychedelics, familiarity is either spared or even enhanced. And so there is this feeling of knowing um, that I think comes with familiarity and, and it's, and it's interesting. Oh, I guess maybe I should give you the example of how you can be familiar in the absence of recollection. Mm -hmm. So I gave you that example of, I can remember where, when, et cetera, you know, um, if I see you at a conference, well, there's also the situation I think we've all had where I can remember, uh, where I can see your face and say, you know what, you seem highly familiar, but I can't remember where I met you, when I met you, what your name is, no details come to mind. I think we've all experienced that. Um, and that's like an example of familiarity in the absence of recollection. Another example that I think, um, you know, and that's, that's, you know, one example that everybody always uses. Another example that I've, I've sort of uh, uh, gone through is when you watch a movie, I don't always remember the movies I watch very well. And yet I'll see a movie sometimes and be like, Oh, wait a minute. I've seen this before. Or actually this happens with adventure time. I watch I watch the show adventure time all the time. And um, you know, the episodes are really short. They're not, really linear. And so it's kind of hard to always put that together into a single sort of narrative. And then I'll be like, man, I've seen this episode before, yet I can't predict what's about to happen at the very end. And then there's a complete surprise that happens at the very end and everybody around me might be surprised. And I'll be like, not surprised, you know, by the twist because yeah. it's, you know, it, it, it felt familiar in the absence of being able to actually recollect what was going to happen at that end. Yeah. And I think this is another case where this will be very familiar uh, to a lot of people, this <laughs> distinction, whether or not they've formalized it in their mind, you know, recollection compared to familiarity. Like if you ask me who was the first president of the United States and I say, George Washington, I'm clearly and accurately recollecting a fact that I have stored in memory. But then you might ask me, who was the second president? And I might say, I, I don't remember. But then you say something like, was John Adams the second president? And I immediately go, yes, he definitely was. Like, I, I recognize it when you say it that way. Like, I'm familiar with that fact, even though I couldn't recollect it. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, and I think in that's exactly that kind of situation, you were familiar with it. But again, I guess that's sort of interesting where you're kind of getting at this idea of, well, it's a semantic memory that you didn't have access to and you didn't have a recent recollection to maybe bootstrap off of the semantic memory. This is where you're kind of maybe getting interaction between semantic memory and episodic memory. So if I took your hippocampus out, chances are you still would know that Adams was the second president, um, which case is sort of the semantic memory, but that the access to that information wasn't 
easily there. But if you'd had an episode at which you were uh, recalling and recollecting, you could recollect the episode of you can recollect the episode of using the semantic memory of retrieving that semantic memory. Now you can kind of use recollection to help your cue your um, semantic memory. And so, yeah, I mean, there's kind of a, uh, again, this is where I think that distinction, you know, can get a little murky and what this, you know, familiarity thing is, is sometimes it's also just the, the ease of which you process information. So, um, you know, even just seeing a, uh, um, for example, if I like, walk you through a, a layout of a house and you've never been there before, but you're like, man, this feels oddly familiar. It might be because this layout of the house is exactly the same as something as, you know, your own house, except I have different things. Instead of having a painting in that corner, I have a, a, a hole in the wall. Instead of having, you know, a, a fireplace here, I have a, a litter box for a cat or something. And it's like the same spatial layout, but um, there's just kind of different sort of features. And then there could be something familiar because it's this ease with which you process that information. And so there is this idea that fluid fluency of processing, whether that's perceptual or conceptual, feeds into this feeling of familiarity. And I think one more thing I wanted to mention is that you can get this familiarity in the absence of recollection. Um, and you can also get recollection in the absence of familiarity. And I think the best you know, example of that is patients with Capgras syndrome. And so, you know, I might see you one day and be like, you know what, I can, I can remember that we did this podcast together and that you had PCAL and TCAL in the background, but you don't feel familiar and therefore you're an imposter or you must be the twin, you know, mm. or something like that. Right. And that's actually something that people will go through. Um, and so it's kind of this, you know, usually these, these processes don't decouple because when they do, you get some bizarre phenomena, like, for example, something like that is not good. If you don't have the noetic consciousness that goes with the recollection, there's, you might think that there's, you're in some, you know, simulation or that, you know, somebody is a, an imposter or something along those lines. And similarly, if, when you have low recollection, but familiarity is high, you don't have recollection to constrain why something feels familiar. You can get other sorts of bizarre phenomena like deja vu or feeling. Here's the interesting one. You can get feelings of insight in that situation, even mm. when you're not actually having a veridical insight. And this is sort of, you know, one of the things I've mentioned with psychedelics is that if they do impair this recollection process, enhance familiarity, this might be where this noetic quality comes from. And people are now going to feel like there's an insight that they're having, even when there's none to be had. And I think that, you know, this is why we have to be a little cautious about interpreting what we think is insight. And also what's interesting is people can now like misattribute feelings of familiarity to, for example, memories that didn't exist. And that can result in a false memory. I think similarly, people can misattribute feelings of insight or feelings of familiarity that give you this feeling of insight onto ideas that probably aren't actually that good <laughs> or, or scrambled ideas of some sort. And this can result in, oh, I had this crazy insight. I just can't bring it back to reality. And it's like, yeah. I don't believe you. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I think deja, deja vu is a great example of how familiarity and recollection can be decoupled and, and one that you know many people will have experienced directly. I mean, deja vu is familiarity in the absence of recollection. That's, that's actually experientially what, what we mean by that. Um, and, and I think the majority of people have had deja vu, at least to some extent, at least at some point. So, so we all have firsthand experience with that. There's um, also jamais vu, which is essentially uh, the opposite. It's recollection in the absence. Of, it's, and I think the example people always use, if you say a word enough times and then you're like, wait a minute, is that actually how that is that actually a word or is that how that is said? 
Um, and I think that can be, sometimes you can get this weird brain fart where you're like, wait a minute, the familiarity doesn't map onto this anymore, but the recollection is there and something feels odd about it. Um, and then there's prescavu, which is essentially the feeling of insight when you're not actually having one. So there's, it's interesting that we've, all these French like sayings have come up, um, for, these distinctions between recollection and familiarity and presumably independently of these distinctions of recollection and familiarity. But um, some people have actually gone out and tried to study them in the absence of drugs like Lynn Reader and not Lynn Reader, sorry. Um, I can't believe I'm forgetting her name, but uh, I will remember it eventually. Yeah. <laughs> and she, you know who it uh, is, yeah. but you can't recollect it in the moment. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> have the familiarity. If you gave me the name, I would know it, but I can't recollect her name off of the papers that I've been reading. Yeah. Um, well, well in yeah, any case, yeah. one yeah. more thing that I think we should unpack up front here too, you sort of hinted at it, you know, when you, when you mentioned things like false memories is the sort of pliability of memories themselves. And so to what extent, you know, so, so if you learn something and then you remember it, you store it in your memory for the long term, um, that memory has been consolidated. And then every time that you recall that memory, you're retrieving the memory from, from its storage in your brain. And, you know, my understanding is that every time you do that, there's actually like a reconsolidation. So every time you recall mm-hmm. something, there's actually room for that memory to be tweaked a little bit. And in fact, this this may even happen quite a lot. Is is that true? And can you talk a little bit about how pliable memories are after they're initially consolidated? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So um, again, this is going to be very dependent on your, uh, uh, somewhat dependent anyways, on your definition of consolidation, whether or not something has been, you know, semanticized to the cortex or whether or not you're talking about just, you know, recently encoded information that still hasn't quite stabilized yet at a synaptic level. Um, But I think in either way you get this, yeah, as soon as you retrieve the memory, you're allowing for the possibility of strengthening it, uh, weakening it, or distorting it. And I mean, that was a lot of my work where in, in grad school, actually, that had a whole separate area. I could have written a a whole dissertation on that had nothing to do with drugs about how we can distort people's memories through different routes of processing information. And so you can give people a bunch of perceptually related things. I can show you a, a, uh, uh, you know, I can show you pictures of a scrambled stimuli of like limes and oranges and grapefruits. And later on, I ask you, did you see a picture of a lemon? And you might say, yes, um, I can show you, I can just show you the words, lime, orange, and grapefruit. And because, uh, those words are going to be processed and feel quite familiar. You can now misattribute that to, let's say a mental image of a lemon. And you'll say, yeah, I saw a picture of a lemon, even though you never actually did. And so, um, yeah, I think there's ways in which essentially, you know, after you encode information that they it's you're now opening them up, they're now susceptible to distortions. And every time you retrieve information that, you know, it can, uh, uh, so for example, if I see you at a conference and then um, I say, oh yeah, you were wearing a green shirt during this um, podcast. And you're like, yeah, I was wearing a green shirt. Maybe if you typically wear green shirts, that's going to seem something plausible. Now, forever in your memory, you're going to remember that we did this podcast with a green shirt. Turns out you're wearing a gray shirt. You know, that's like an easy way in which your memory memory could probably be manipulated. Um, but yeah, I think there are, for example, more semanticized types of memories. Let's say these these ones that might be consolidated at a systems level, whether or not you believe in systems consolidation or not. But they can become almost factual. It'd be very hard to, to kind of disrupt those types of memories. So it's, you know, you can do a lot of brain damage to me and it's going to be a while before I forget that George Washington was the first president of the country. It's kind of like patients with Alzheimer's 
they'll lose the ability to form new memories. They'll lose the ability to remember recently encoded information, like the doctor that they've now met several times over. Um, but you know, their mother's face, it takes a minute before that goes away. Not to say that that doesn't, but at least the person that's most prominent in their life, who they've probably semanticized their face to some degree, um, that takes a minute. And then of course, when that happens, it's a really, you know, scary and terrible situation, but you know, they'll probably lose some other types of factual information rather than the like really hard coded ones. And I think that those are the types of memories though, ironically, sometimes that we do want to manipulate during treatment with things like psychedelics, um, given that, you know, we can, our sense of self can become very hard coded, for example, and I'm a terrible person because I did these things and every day is the same. And, you know, there's nothing worth living for, et cetera. That can become a very, kind of a normal way of living or, you know, with PTSD that, you know, people talk about how those traumatic memories really just take on a life of their own and that becomes who you are. And so we do want to disrupt those types of memories. And in rodents, you can show that you can take these memories that are no longer reliant on the amygdala or the hippocampus, and you can do certain things. You reactivate the memory and now it places in a state that's labile. You inject a protein synthesis inhibitor into the amygdala or hippocampus, because now they supposedly become reliant on the hippocampus or amygdala again. And then it's not immediately, they don't go away. But the next day when they reconsolidate, they have some time to destabilize with that protein synthesis inhibitor. You can now delete those fear memories that are, you know, that were really hard coded into the cortex. In humans, it's been a lot more difficult to do. Um, and this is, you know, kind of one of the interesting sort of sides to this idea of looking at recollection familiarity. If psychedelics really do enhance the coding in the cortex, you might imagine that learning information through a, 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 an enhanced route in the cortex might be better able to disrupt or, or overwrite some of those hard-coded memories, um, those semanticized memories in the cortex. But you know, this is definitely somewhat speculation. Well, I mean, this sort of gets in an anchor point here for people who are familiar with the podcast and, and this work generally, the work of you know MDMA-assisted psychotherapy, if you think about it, what you're really doing in those clinical trials is you are having multiple therapy sessions, and then you're introducing the MDMA. In other words, you're getting the person to talk about their trauma, to recollect their trauma and, and call up those memories. And the idea would be that every time you're retrieving those memories, the synapses and the circuits storing them are in a labile state, which means you know they, they can potentially change. And the MDMA would seem to be somehow um, taking advantage of that. So when you introduce the MDMA while they're in this um, state of recollecting their past trauma, the, the plasticity or the potential of the memory to be changed allows them to actually decouple the emotional, the traumatic sort of emotional salient emotionally salient part of it from the, uh, the recollection of, of the episode itself. And, and that does seem to be what they say afterwards, right? When this therapy works, as it often does, people aren't forgetting what happened to them. It just doesn't carry the same kind of emotional weight that it used to. So, so some, somehow the, the sort of facts of what happened to them are becoming decoupled from the emotional salience that used to be associated with those facts. Yeah. And I think that there's, there's other aspects to this. Like one is that, you know, I was kind of, I was saying that in humans, it's been rather difficult to really show, you know, reconsolidation. I mean, it's, it's kind of been there, but a lot more difficult, at least compared to rodents. Um, but what you can think about is that, well, one reason is that we're, there's a couple of reasons. One is that it might be difficult to trigger that reconsolidation process such that the memory becomes labile, but we have this drug that supposedly induces plasticity or metaplasticity or whatever you want to call it. I think, you know, some people, there's been some argument now between 
uh, uh, David Olson and Gould Dolan about what kind of plasticity is important and um, you're some, it might increase the ability, the ability to uh, label, labelize, to, to, to make the memory more plastic. Yeah. Um, and so the other thing is that sometimes you really need a, a really hard retrieval to like make a memory label. Um, and so it, 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 it's like, so people have shown, for example, a weak sort of retrieval or a retrieval that doesn't have good prediction error um, doesn't end up being very useful in triggering the reconsolidation process, but at least with something like psychedelics, maybe these two things are directly linked that plasticity inducing mechanism, as well as the, they, they enhance your uh, uh, mental imagery. And so I'm not going to say that the retrieval of whatever, whatever you're retrieving is, is more veridical, it's more true, but at least it could feel more true and really kind of trigger that as well as one more thing that I've, 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 thought about is that, you know, I've, I've wondered, you know, you can take a rodent that doesn't has had a very impoverished sort of, um, you know, life. It lives in a cage, in a white, sterile environment. And when you play it a cue that is now associated with, um, you know, a shock, that is the first time it's heard any sort of, you know, sound like that. And it's going to be very easy to delete that one memory, right? But as humans, we're hyper-associative and anything that's, you know, kind of scary. In fact, one of the issues with uh, PTSD is that there's an overgeneralization where maybe the sand from the desert, I've used this example all the time, um, the sand from the desert because you fought a war in Iraq, that's going to now be associated with trauma. But now um, you go to the beach, the sand is there, and now you're overgeneralizing, you're going to have like a full-blown episode because now you're at the beach. Um, you know, and I wonder if you were to take, let's say, a New York subway rat rather than, you know, one that's been raised in an impoverished environment, that New York subway rat has heard all kinds of beeps and tones from the New York subway, from people's cell phones, whatever. And my, I would wonder if you try to delete the memory the way that people have done this in these reconsolidation paradigms, if that hyper-association that the brain is known to do would actually fill in the gaps and you're not actually going to be able to delete it very well unless you delete all the associations that it comes with that tone that's now associated with a traumatic shock. And I think one thing that, you know, psychedelics have kind of been shown to do is at least one study showed this is that you can get enhanced kind of semantic priming or enhanced semantic spread. And so not only are you, you know, making certain memories labile, it's perhaps making a lot of other things labile that are related to those. And so if we can not just rewrite the like single trauma, but all the associations with that trauma, I think that could also be useful. And of course there's, you know, certain hard coded things you wouldn't ever want um, you know, rewritten. And I think the example I've used is that when you see a chunk of metal, you shouldn't think of it as a chunk of metal. You should know that that's a car. That automatic mapping between the percept to the concept should never be broken or else you're going to find yourself walking the street with chunks of metal and then find yourself hit, right? Or the mapping between what is red and green, you don't ever want those two things to mix up or else, again, you're going to run a red light, you know? Um, and, and people do sort of talk about sometimes under, after psychedelics that these really hard-coded things do start can become a little plastic and people, you know, for example, the HPPD, they might get forever color constancy. So that's kind of now a hard coded thing that might become kind of broken down, it's semanticized, you know, sort of uh, uh, way in which, you know, in the cortex that probably is hard to break, but if it does get broken, really bad things can happen. And I think this is where we have to be really careful of what we're overriding in the cortex, assuming these drugs really do enhance information processing psychedelic specifically, um, in the cortex. So in starting to think about how different kinds of drugs affect memory at, you know, at different phases or different kinds of memory, let's talk a little bit about, um, what, like what distinct classes of drugs are like, what is a class mm -hmm. of drugs? What makes a, 
what makes something a, a sedative versus a dissociative at the level of the chemistry and the pharmacology? How do you start to think about that in the abstract? Yeah. So this is something that I've, you know, uh, it's not totally arbitrary how I've, I've parsed things. Um, you know, other people have, have kind of made similar sorts of um, taxonomies for drugs, but yeah, I've sort of classified drugs that alter the GABA A receptor as sedatives. Um, I know that, you know, other drugs can be sedating. THC can be sedating. I know that opioids can be sedating, but just for the sake of simplicity, I've started referring to sedatives as anything that modulates the GABA-A receptor. So um, the GABA is your main inhibitory neurotransmitter in the brain. Um, and so, uh, for example, when you're having a seizure, they might give you something like, uh, something that modulates the GABA receptor to kind of mellow out the activity. Alcohol has many different effects. Um, but probably its main effect comes from modulation of the GABA A receptor. You also have a GABA B receptor and, um, there are some drugs that modulate the GABA B receptor, such as GHB. GHB also seems to modulate the GHB receptor. Um, and so it seems to have this weird biphasic effect where you get this initial almost MDMA-like effect at lower doses. And then I think it becomes really sedating at higher doses when it hits the GABA-B receptor. Um, and you do have other drugs like uh, uh, phenob phenobut and some other ones that modulate the GABA-B receptor. And clearly they have a slightly different effect. I think GABA A is, is probably more sedating, but you know, I'll, I'll eat my words when somebody shows me some good GABA B data. Um, but other drugs that modulate the GABA A receptor, you know, and all these drugs do kind of share some effects is, so you've got alcohol, you've got benzodiazepines like Xanax, Alprazolam, um, any of these other triazolam, et cetera. Um, triazolam is also sometimes used as a, um, in anesthesia. Then you have uh, Ambien, so um, Zolpidem. This is, you know, a, these are drugs used for sleep aids. And so all these drugs, um, interestingly enough, yeah, you take a lot of them, you become addicted. They're the only drugs that'll kill you if you go off of them immediately because um, you can get seizures. So you keep inhibiting the system over and over and over, then you get a rebound effect if you, um, if you go off of them. Um, opioids, you'll feel like hell after going off of them, but it won't kill you necessarily. Uh, stimulants, you will feel depressed and lack of energy, but it won't kill you if you go off of them. I think these are the, the GABA-A drugs. And actually with alcohol, when people are withdrawing, they give them benzodiazepines. And then you take benzodiazepines, you know, low doses over time and hopefully try to come off of them eventually. Um, so, 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 I yeah. mean, so at a high level, what, basically what you're saying is what allows you to care uh, to classify certain drugs as being one type of drug, like a sedative, is that they have at least directionally the same qualitative effects, and those are due to some sort of shared underlying mechanism that they they modulate a receptor in the same general direction. So they, they may not have identical effects, but if you're if you're increasing GABA transmission through the GABA A receptor, and this is resulting in lethargy and sleepiness and that general kind of psychological effect, then you would say, okay, that drug is a sedative. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, there's other interesting things that these drugs uniquely do that I guess we can get into in a bit, but yeah, I mean, I think these drugs do kind of group together nicely. And as you said, they're not it's obviously not the case that they do the exact same thing. Um, people like their benzos more than they like their alcohol. And it's not just because the hangover that you get with alcohol, they don't get so much with benzos. Um, people, uh, uh, Ambien, it clearly has this borderline hallucinogenic effect. Um, and then what I should say is all these drugs modulate 
the GABA-A receptor, those three drugs, and they might modulate different types of GABA-A receptors that have different subunits, but they all modulate them um, by binding to kind of similar locations on the GABA-A receptor and facilitating your endogenous GABA. So the, 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 the natural inhibitory transmitter that you have in your brain now acts even better if something like a benzo or alcohol or ambient is now bound to the receptor. Um, there's also barbiturates, and uh, those also modulate the receptor. I'm forgetting what the exact difference between those and benzos are, but I, it could be that I think benzos increase the probability of opening sodium channels or something. And then I think that barbiturates just kind of hold the sodium channel open, but don't, you know, don't uh, uh, quote me on that. And then you have drugs like, you know, the, this is, these have yet to enter the psychedelic Renaissance, um, but I did speak to, I don't know if I should uh, say his name for fear of, I, I don't know if he wants us out there in the open, but I was at this conference this past weekend in Toronto um, from Research to Reality. And I spoke to um, somebody, uh, this pharma company, and they're potentially going to be looking into a uh, to muscimol. Muscimol is a drug that exists in the Mario mushroom, the Alice in Wonderland mushroom, the fly agaric, Amanita muscaria, the red mushroom with white dots on it. That is not the same type of magic mushroom as what's in, you know, psilocybin containing mushrooms. It contains muscimol, and this actually agonizes the GABA A receptor. It activates it in the same way your GABA, your endogenous GABA might. It binds to the same location. It doesn't modulate the receptor. And that one is especially thought to cause certain types of hallucinations and dissociations. And so I've referred to that, those types of drugs as being a uh, dissociative sedative. And there's also Gaboxidol. That was a drug that was attempted to be um, marketed for as a sleep aid, but then it, um, it ended up, uh, uh, I think maybe because of the, the hallucinations that people got from it, it wasn't as good as ambient and didn't make it forward. Um, although I think maybe some would argue it's a better sleep aid and, and I don't know, but um, so those drugs are also somewhat sedating, but you know they clearly have a another side to them that's borderline hallucinogenic, as does Ambien for whatever reason, even though it's not an agonist. So yeah, qualitative differences, but they do overall have, share many features and their main effects can be attributed to the GABA-A receptor, but how they activate that GABA-A receptor is probably playing a role in some of the differences in their effects, as well as some of the things they're doing outside of the GABA-A receptor, like alcohol, which is a pretty pharmacologically promiscuous drug. Yeah, um, so, so there's so. Many, many sedatives. They all mm -hmm. directionally have the same effect. They basically make you sleepy, some of them more than others. Some of them also have some kind of dissociative and or hallucinatory and or some other component to them. So they're not all identical, but they're all acting on this one receptor. They might also act on other receptors, but they're positively modulating this GABA-A inhibitory receptor. So that's why we cluster them all together. So now mm -hmm. compare that to something like dissociative. So why would something like ketamine be classified as a dissociative and not a sedative? Right. Yeah. So, okay. So now moving on to dissociatives, we can, we can basically move through my paper of unique effects in that order. Cause I think that the, the, the drugs tell, an, it, it, we, we group them that way on purpose because I think they tell kind of this building story. Um, so yeah, the NMDA antagonists are, uh, these are drugs that, yeah, they modulate the NMDA receptor. So the NMDA receptor is very much involved in, we talked about long-term potentiation, strengthening of synapses. That's a, uh, a receptor in the brain. That's very much involved in that. And um, glutamate, is kind of one of the endogenous ligands for NMDA, as well as NMDA itself, um, which is a chemical that binds to the NMDA receptor. Um, and when you bind certain drugs to it, that when you block that receptor, you get these pretty crazy, you know, effects like with ketamine, you know, you get these very dissociative effects. 
Ketamine is certainly also a promiscuous drug that binds to various other things. Um, I think, you know, the R enantiomer of ketamine, so you've got the left-handed and right-handed one, the the S ketamine has now been, you know, uh, uh, approved for depression, but the R, for example, I think binds to like sigma receptors. I think the S enantiomer, S ketamine binds also to opioid receptors, but you can say most of its effects probably come from this NMDA blockade. And one way you can say that is because drugs like dextromethorphan, which also are pharmacologically promiscuous, but it seems to also do very you know, similar things, to dissociative things by binding to the NMDA receptor. Dextromethorphan is in various over-the-counter cough syrups. Um, nitrous oxide, an NMDA antagonist, similar sorts of dissociation. I think that you know some people will kind of talk about the really crazy nitrous oxide effects you get, but that's because you're just getting such a high dose. If you were to K-hole, um, I'm sure that the effects could be somewhat similar. Um, I'm trying to think of another, there was another NMDA, you have the other ones like MXC, methoxetamine or something, and some of these other drugs that um, have kind of come about over the years. But those are your your NMDA antagonists. They bind to the NMDA, yeah, they they block the NMDA receptor. Um, And they also cause, you know, somewhat kind of, they can be somewhat sedating, especially with their higher doses, but they pretty much all share somewhat hallucinogenic properties. and they're definitely somewhat different from what you get with the GABA-A positive allosteric modulators or the, you know, any GABA-A sort of drug. Um, I'm trying to think of what other, they, you know, they do produce some, you know, this, this dense amnesic state. So with, I think the GABA-A drugs, you get like a blackout with the NMDA drugs, you get a like K-hole, but I don't think anybody would say those two things are necessarily the same, right? And so again, you have a, a shared pharmacology across these drugs and then certain shared qualitative aspects to them that then I think group makes me call them dissociatives and these other drugs sedatives. Um, so yeah, then there's, do, should we go over more about the dissociatives or should we? No, I mean, I, I think, yeah. you know, I think, I think <laughs> yeah. this is starting to become clear to people, right? So sedatives and dissociatives, basically the difference is the things that we call sedatives interact with one receptor, the GABA receptor in a particular kind of way in a certain kind of direction to give you a certain kind of effect. So you know, I don't know what a good analogy is here, maybe like a guitar chord or something. Like there's many different E chords you can play. Um, they'll all have somewhat different notes, but they share like a common, a common structure. And so the sedatives are all acting through this GABA-A receptor in some way. And that's distinct from the dissociatives, which are interacting with a different receptor in a different kind of way. And that accounts at least in part or in large part for the differences in the, the qualitative effects they have. Yeah. And I think that one thing that's worth mentioning, because this will, uh, this, this again, will tell you something unique about psychedelics once we get to that point, is that um, many of these drugs, uh, uh, they, they really facilitate inhibition. So um, GABA-A, you're driving the GABA-A receptor activity at it. They're increasing the ability for GABA to do its job. Therefore, you're facilitating inhibition. Glutamate is the main excitatory neurotransmitter in the brain, and now you're blocking glutamate with dissociatives from doing its job. So in some ways you're inhibiting, you're causing more inhibition. Now, there are some weird downstream effects from um, NMDA antagonism that can result in more glutamate release and whatnot, but just at a very you know, uh, a basic level at the initial step, you are talking about blocking a excitatory neurotransmitter from doing its job. Um, You're you're basically explaining why sedatives and dissociatives are kind of, you know, you might consider them close cousins. Yeah. Um, And why they both impair the encoding of new memories, for example. Um, 
And so that's, you know, that's one idea. And then if we go through this, through my unique, you know, uh, effects paper, the really long title, because I had to include all the different drug drugs in there, drug classes, you have your psychedelics. Um, and so these are also hallucinogenic, right? Like the um, NMDA antagonists or even some GABA-A drugs, um, but they activate the serotonin 2A receptor. So serotonin is interesting uh, compared to some of your other uh, neurotransmitter systems. There's like 14 different receptors. And as far as I know, that's more receptors for a given system that a single neurotransmitter can bind to compared to, I think, dopamine. Maybe there's five receptors, GABA, there's GABA A and B. You know, I'm sure some pharmacologists going to come out, come on here and, and correct me. Um, but, you know, there seems to be a lot of receptors for serotonin. And what some will say is that the serotonin 2A receptor has low affinity for serotonin itself. Not that serotonin doesn't bind it, but maybe serotonin will bind it when there's more serotonin kind of floating around in the system because now it's higher probability that'll hit that receptor. Um, although I think there's low affinity and high affinity states of the serotonin 2A receptor to, you know, complicate things. But, um, but the point is, is that when you activate that receptor, you then get kind of your classic psychedelic effects. And this is what I refer to as psychedelics or drugs that bind to this specific receptor um, because they do share somewhat, you know, the types of visuals that you might get. They um, share maybe some of the weird thought loops you might go through. They, they share the same auditory distortions, the color constancy breaking down, you know, um, I guess for those who don't know, you see a white wall with shadows on it. You see it all as white. It's good that you see it as all white because it's all one solid you know, it's all one solid material, but if you would actually take individual pixels out of that white wall, blow them up onto a, a white background on a computer screen, you would notice that there's actually probably all kinds of different colors in there, yellows, reds, greens, et cetera. And it's, you know, under psychedelics that might break down something like color constancy. I'm, I'm sure you also see various colors that aren't actually there on psychedelics, but a lot of times I think color constancy is maybe that first step of breaking down color perception. And in some ways you are seeing what's actually there. It's just not very useful to be adaptive. It wouldn't be good if I thought this wall was made of many different uh, uh, materials and that's why it's shining different colors. Um, so, but yeah, with, you know, psychedelics, so you have drugs like yeah, LSD, psilocybin, DMT. I think I'm now told that 5-MeO DMT actually has relatively low affinity for the serotonin 2A receptor, but you know, it'll, it'll, time will tell if you block that receptor, do you remove its effects? Um, and that's at least what a lot of people have shown now with, uh, regular DMT and with psilocybin and with um, LSD. If you block those receptors and you take LSD, you're pretty much removing most of the psychedelic experience. Um, and so even MDMA. So in this paper that you know I've I've got as a preprint, we group MDMA in with psychedelics. And the reason we do this is there's a couple. MDMA is really a stimulant, or maybe I should say intactogen stimulant psychedelic hybrid in the order with which um, that you, it might be considered. The intactogenic effects are coming from the fact that it's uh, preventing- What, what is that? Yeah. Intact, what, explain it, intactogen. The, you know, there's not a great, it means like touched within. It's not a great- um, But it's, it's the empathy, yeah. touchy-feely component. Yeah. See, I avoid the term empathy because- um, it's interesting, right? There's this terrible distinction if you ask me, and I'm not a social psychologist, so maybe I shouldn't you know, critique their field too much, but there's this distinction between cognitive empathy and emotional empathy. And they'll say, hey, here's a bunch of pictures of faces that are morphed between neutral and sad, neutral and happy, whatever. Tell me, you know, it's like 10% happy, 30% happy, 50% happy, et cetera. Tell me what emotion is in this face. 
And um, a lot of people will become worse on that task under MDMA. So let's say my threshold for detecting a happy face is, you know, uh, let's not say happy because I think the happy one actually either gets better or stays the same with MDMA, but like fear. Um, let's say my threshold normally detect fear would be like 30% of a, it needs to be 30% fearful. And then, you know, the 70% neutral, you can morph these faces, you know, with different percentages. Right. But then when I'm on MDMA, I need a 50% fearful face to detect that it's fearful. Well, if I can't detect what's going on in that face, how do I know what they're feeling? <laughs> and so cognitive yeah. empathy is this ability of, of, of detecting, you know, uh, what's in a face. It's an, it's usually well, yeah, as an I, answer. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's interesting. I mean, I, I can even see that tying into why it has these pro-social. So when people hear the word intactogen, it, it's sort of speaking to the pro-social side of drugs like MDMA. And right, if, if you can't tell that someone is looking angry or unapproachable, you'll be more likely to approach them. And, you know, one of the, the hallmarks of MDMA is, uh, you know, p- people are very uh, approachable. Right. Yeah. And so I think that's, I think the pro-sociality is is a good one. I think the empathy, I'm like, sometimes I'm like, wait a minute. And so there's this idea of emotional empathy that the MDMA increases. You look at somebody, you know, an emotional face and you're like, oh, I can feel what they're feeling. Right. But if you don't actually know what they're going, if you don't know objectively what they are, like you think, oh yeah, this person is surprised. I'm surprised too. It's like, no, they're fearful. You know, it's like, that doesn't really count as empathy to me. You wouldn't say that somebody is empathic who feels the emotions of others, but doesn't get the emotion correct. You know, that would be, yeah. And so I think that, yeah, it's unclear to me if uh, the empathogen is not a great, I think, term for these drugs, but yeah, I think that um, the the pro-sociality and and I think that this is something Harriet DeWitt has done a lot of where she has, um, you know, kind of defined what's the distinction on the social effects between MDMA and other types of stimulants like methamphetamine, right? MDMA is methylene dioxide, methamphetamine. And I mean, you know, I think it's it's still sometimes unclear to me what the distinction is because clearly other stimulants make people social, but um, I don't know if they do so, you know, it's it's kind of almost like confidence versus arrogance, I feel like is maybe, you know, the way that somebody might be social. And I mean, both drugs make people more talkative. They make people approach people more. Um, certainly less people are getting into fights on MDMA, more people are getting into fights under stimulants. So maybe there's an aggression side to it. There's also, it makes you wonder. So here's the other side of MDMA. It does affect dopamine and norepinephrine. And this is what a stimulant is, is by, so serotonin, the way it affects all these chemicals, MDMA is that it not, it binds to the transporter that would normally shuttle synaptic serotonin, dopamine, norepinephrine. There's one for each of those serotonin transporter, dopamine transporter, norepinephrine transporters, that's CERT, DAT, and NET. And so it'll bind to those transporters and not only prevent those transporters from doing their job, shuttling serotonin back into the presynaptic neuron, but they also take that transporter back up into the presynaptic neuron and then cause a release of a bunch of um, serotonin or dopamine or norepinephrine. And so, um, you know, one difference between, for example, methylphenidate and amphetamine is that methylphenidate doesn't do that reversal of the transporter, it just blocks the transporter, it doesn't release a bunch of extra dopamine and norepinephrine. Um, and so anyways, MDMA does that. It's unclear now if those stimulant effects are also needed, which come from the dopamine and neuroadrenergic effects or norepinephrine effects. And so um, it's the side of MDMA. It's definitely a stimulant. And anybody who, you know, doesn't want to call it a stimulant is just, you know, playing themselves. It certainly has very strong stimulant effects. And there are drugs that have been developed that more selectively modulate 
this like synaptic serotonin. There's drugs like it's methylene dioxyaminoindane. I think a lot of these were developed by Dave Nichols. Um, so yeah, MDAI, there's MEAI. There was a drink called Pace that was sold in Canada that contained MEAI. Eventually the Canadian government took it off, but I think for a bit it was being sold. Um, I know David Nutt in the UK at one point wanted to create a drug based on something like this that was a, you know, it modulated the serotonin transporter in this fashion, but didn't affect dopamine and norepinephrine to try to create a new drug that people can do on the weekends that might not be as neurotoxic as something like MDMA um, and maybe, you know, doesn't have the stimulant effects that could, you know, keep people up all night, et cetera. Um, I think he, he abandoned that project, but you can find old interviews of him talking about it. And by old, I mean like seven years ago, five years ago, something like that. Um, and so, yeah, anyway, so MDMA, but the last thing that MDMA does is MDMA is actually two drugs. Like, like the way we're talking about ketamine, you have a left-handed version and a right-handed version, all the same chemicals. They're just organized in a fashion, just like my hands have my left and right hand have all the same material. Let's pretend they do anyways, um, except they're organized in a fashion that directly mirror each other. And you can do that with chemicals. And so the R enantiomer recto of MDMA actually binds to the serotonin 2A receptor. And mm. people have shown if you block the serotonin 2A receptor, like you do with something like psychedelic drugs, like LSD, psilocybin, classic psychedelics, or, or more full psychedelics, maybe we should call them. Um, you do remove some of the effects of MDMA. And if you take a drug like MDA, so that's methylenedoxyamphetamine, not methamphetamine, you get some more of the, a bit more of the psychedelic effects. It's probably still much more on the MDMA side than the LSD side or psilocybin side, but it certainly has a little bit more of that psychedelic flavor. Um, I've heard even if you take like, you know, 200 milligrams, you're not, you know, 200 milligrams of MDMA might be, I don't think I recommend anybody do that. I think you could, you can't, could in theory, some people could that, die from that's it. That's a lot. Yeah. yeah. I think that there was actually somebody who died from a pure 250 um, at a festival in the UK. I remember reading. So, but in theory, if you take a high dose of MDA, uh, MDMA, you know, you might still want to be social, even though you're going to be kind of stoned to a chair. I've heard on MDA, it can get kind of weird where like, it becomes almost like psychedelics where eh, I'm socially awkward. I'd rather be laying in a bed, you know, um, with one or two friends or something. Right. And so, um, you know, then you have drugs like 2CB, which I think it does actually bind to the serotonin transporter and you get some of this intactogenic effects, but it also binds to the serotonin to a receptor and is certainly more of the LSD psilocybin type drug than it is MDMA. And so I think all these, a lot of these drugs do have these kind of in between qualities. And, you know, I think MDMA is just a hybrid that certainly is more intactogenic stimulant than it is psychedelic, but it has some psychedelic effects that I think we can't totally ignore. But um, I mean, time will tell once we give a drug that if we can give a serotonin 2A antagonist during an MDMA session to show that, Hey, it has all the you know good effects that we need. Then we can say that, Hey, those are the most therapeutic effects. We don't need the psychedelic effect, but at least a lot of the animal research is showing that you do need the serotonin 2A effects to, um, to get at least some of the animal models of treatment of fear memories and whatnot. Um, and then, okay, this now brings me to the stimulants, which I can briefly go over because the uh, stimulants basic, because I've already sort of explained them. They mess with the dopamine and norepinephrine transporter. Um, and so these are drugs that, you know, like amphetamine, methamphetamine, but methylphenidate, as I mentioned, and cocaine actually don't reverse the transporter's action. They don't release dopamine and norepinephrine. They just block it. Um, but it's interesting because if you just block these transporters, you don't quite get the same type of stimulant effect a lot of times. There's drugs like riboxetine, which is a serotonin and norepinephrine reuptake inhibitor. Also, if you just block the serotonin transporter with something like um, Prozac, you know, or citalopram, you don't get MDMA-like effects. And same thing here. So it's, it's interesting. I don't know what 
you know, methylphenidate clearly still and cocaine still clearly have something they share with amphetamine and methamphetamine, but it must not have to do with just releasing, you know, it's not releasing serotonin and, and dopamine. That's strictly it. But those things do apparently add to the stimulant effect. Um, and I realized that caffeine could also be a stimulant here. I mean, just these dopaminergic neuroadrenergic effects is what I refer to as a stimulant. They keep people up. They can enhance focus, although there's probably an inverted U, um, et cetera. Um, I don't think we have to talk too much more about stimulants unless, yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> so to summarize so far, basically we've talked about sedatives, dissociatives, stimulants, psychedelics, <laughs> sedatives um, are drugs that make you sleepy. And they do this at least in part by cranking up inhibition through this GABA A receptor. Dissociatives have this very interesting dissociative, you know, weird type of effect that people report and they block a different receptor called the NMDA receptor. Stimulants are the ones that, that most of us are familiar with to some extent. They, they stimulate you, they activate you and make you more awake basically. And they're acting primarily through dopamine and norepinephrine-based mechanisms. And then you've said that the psychedelics have their effects, the true psychedelics or the strong psychedelics by activating the serotonin to a receptor. So each yeah. class of drugs is characterized by interacting with a different set or different uh, type of receptor to, to give rise to different effects. Um, one that we haven't talked about yet are cannabinoids. So cannabinoids. How, do they, how do they differ? Okay. So yeah. So then you have your endocannabinoid system this is kind of interesting because I think they found the receptors before they found the endogenous, um, you know, neurotransmitter essentially. And so there's this idea that, Oh my God, were we just meant to all smoke weed, you know, like uh, what's this receptor doing in there? There's not a chemical in there. Um, I don't think any scientist was actually thinking that, but I'm sure the public, I'm sure the scientists were like, there's definitely an endogenous, uh, uh, a chemical that binds to these receptors. We just haven't found it yet. And so I think that the, the receptors like see the C there's CB one and CB two, one or both of those receptors, um, cannabinoid receptor one, cannabinoid receptor two, were I think it was, they were found in like the sixties or something. And then it was not until the nineties that they found one of the endogenous ligands, which they named anandamide. So Ananda means bliss in Sanskrit. And so this was kind of a, you know, they, they named it because of, you know, THC, but really, obviously this thing came first in terms of evolutionarily binding to things. It's not like people are using THC and then we developed these receptors or, or whatever it is. Um, or then we developed an andamide, we created an endogenous version because of use of evolutionary use of, you know, cannabis or anything like that. So it was, yeah, it was just developed later. And so they named it an andamide. Um, and so, uh, yeah, you have endogenous anandamide that binds to these um, receptors. What's interesting about most of these cannabinoid receptors, well, CB1, I think, is um, more densely distributed in the brain, whereas I think CB2 is more around the body, like your gut and whatnot. And, you know, again, I'm not a like neurobiologist. I would be happy if, you know, some pharmacologist corrected me on that. Um, but your CB1 receptors generally tend to be presynaptic. So you have one neuron that's projecting onto another neuron. And every receptor we pretty much talked about, generally speaking, is on the second neuron that um, is having another neuron, you know, impose onto it. And so um, CB1 receptors tend to be more presynaptic. So they're in that first neuron that's shooting out to the second one. And um, they're essentially, so, you know, dopamine and norepinephrine can generally be activating um, as uh, uh, you know, I think a lot of things, the, the first two drugs we talked about NMDA antagonism, you're sort of inhibiting, you're, you're inhibiting the ability for the main excitatory neurotransmitter to do its job. GABA is inhibiting, um, 
is, is enhancing the inhibition of the brain. This is CB1 receptors are also inhibitory. I think they prevent the presynaptic neuron from firing onto that next neuron. So again, generally inhibitory. I did uh, find out recently there's one set of excitatory um, CB1 receptors in this region, uh, the entorhinal cortex. And then I heard from another you know, set of people that that might be bullshit. And so anyways, it's, yeah, yeah, yeah it's, I think it gets yeah. a little bit tricky. So, so yeah, so, so the cannabinoid receptor results in inhibition of a neuron, but there's a lot of CB1 receptors on inhibitory neurons. So if you inhibit an inhibitory neuron, it, it leads to excitation. Two negatives equal a positive. Exactly. Um, so, you know, and, and, and here's the thing. So I didn't talk about serotonin and what, so dopamine norepinephrine generally are excitatory, but there are, for example, um, uh, D2, they're, they're autoreceptors essentially in certain areas where if you activate those receptors, you can actually decrease dopaminergic tone and you can decrease, you know, maybe cause more inhibition. But, you know, just broadly speaking, I think dopamine and norepinephrine, I think are more kind of excitatory and, um, you know, GABA and, and MDA tags are more inhibitory. And then cannabinoid receptors are generally inhibitory in many ways. Uh, but serotonin is a weird one. You have things like 5-HT1A. So you have 14 receptors, you have the 1A receptor, and that's actually, I think, inhibitory. You have the serotonin 2A receptor, which is generally excitatory. Um, but again, there are serotonin 2A receptors on inhibitory neurons in also an in entorhinal cortex, probably an interesting um, structure. Uh, it's the entrance to the hippocampus, by the way. So it's a, a, some people have referred to it as a wall of inhibition, lots of inhibitory circuitry that uh, uh, prevents all information from getting into the hippocampus or else you get catastrophic interference and then you wouldn't be able to remember anything. Um, but uh, yeah, the general, the general consensus is that you get probably more excitation from activating the serotonin 2A receptor, which is excitatory and located mostly on, as some people say anyways, you know, on layer five pyramidal neurons throughout the cortex, which those are projectors that tend to be excitatory. So, um, you know, so I guess, you know, this now kind of brings me to what's interesting about some of these drugs is in terms of if we talk about these drugs and their effects on, you know, let's just start with memory and coding. You have all these drugs that inhibit the system. Surprise, surprise, they, they, they make your encoding worse. And again, I don't want to say retrieval. I'm not going to talk about consolidation. I'm talking about the formation of memories. So I give you a drug. I show you a bunch of stimuli. I'm now going to test your memory two days later. So, you know, all the acute effects are gone. Let's pretend the consolidation stuff doesn't exist for now. And so forming those memories under these drugs, um, Another way, by the way, you can test consolidation is you can test people immediately, you can test them later. And if the effect is larger later, you can say that, okay, it was probably affecting somewhat the consolidation as well. But anyway, that's a whole other. Um, so yeah, you have drugs that you inhibit. So GABA-A positive allergic modulators, they, and, and NMDA antagonists and cannabinoids, they impair your ability to form recollection and familiarity-based memories. So if I test your memory the next day, um, you know, you're not gonna be able to recollect as well things. You're not gonna be able to make the associations and where and when information. If I just show you, Hey, did you see this? Did you drink this beer last night? This is not a beer, by the way, this is some weird probiotic drink my uh, partner got. But, um, if, if, you know, I show you this, did you drink this last night? You'll be like, I don't know. It doesn't feel familiar, you know? And so all these drugs generally impact both those types of memories. Um, and what's interesting, at least one of the things, you know, we found was generally speaking, impairing familiarity was more difficult at higher doses. You get impairments of familiarity, 
of some of these drugs. Um, and I think that makes sense. You know, a lot of times, yeah, you can't recollect things, but someone's like, Hey, but do you remember you did, you like got up on the bar and you did some stupid things last night, you danced up there and it's like, Oh yeah, I did do that. You know, you might recognize that. Then there's also situations in which you just saturate the, all the receptors throughout your brain. Probably you're blacking out and you're now like, I have no recollection. That doesn't even feel familiar to me. Nothing. Right. Um, and so I think that, you know, one thing that this tells us about familiarity is that it's a distributed sort of process that it takes, you know, perceptual semantic information and it's the activation across all these things. And that's why it's kind of a backup process almost that is probably developed um, for when recollection fails. Your hippocampus is susceptible to all kinds of problems. So Korsakoff syndrome, that's when you drink too much, you know, that your hippocampus gets massively messed up. Uh, herpes encephalitis. So I think even, I mean, somebody can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think even type one herpes, the one that... 80% of people or whatever have the, the cold sores on your lips. I think that like some rare proportion of people that can infect your brain, your hippocampus goes away. Um, you know, obviously epilepsy, and then you have to take out your hippocampus, you know, or parts of your hippocampus. A lot of times the medial temporal lobe, but hippocampus gets hit pretty hard. So you have this backup process familiarity that seems to be generally pretty good at um, giving you at least some ability to recognize things. So if I take out your hippocampus and I ask you, I show you a list of words and then I ask you, hey, recall as many words as you can, you might say to me, what list of words? And then instead I'll be like, here's a list of words that I'm gonna show you that you've previously seen and some that you haven't previously seen. Tell me which ones you've seen and you might be like, okay. And then you're like, that feels familiar. You'll still be able to perform above chance because you can use familiarity, this backup process. So. Again, all of these drugs, so cannabinoids, NMDA antagonists, uh, so, you know, yeah, THC, uh, uh, dissociatives like ketamine and GABA-A positive modulators like benzos, alcohol, and sulpidum, they all drive sort of inhibition and they impair recollection at higher doses impair familiarity. The, the one last thing I want to say about that is in our review, we had one zolpidum manipulation, so Ambien. Um, and it was a weird sort of uh, study and there might be reasons for this that are just explained by the differences in the study design. Interestingly enough, that study, I think familiarity was, this is the only manipulation in which familiarity was hit harder than recollection. And so, you know, it's like, this would be something very interesting to study in the future. It's like, wait a minute, is this an actual difference between this type of sedative and some of these other sedatives? Does it really produce, um, does it really, you know, produce almost like what you might think of as, yeah, like a, a capgrass syndrome where, you know, you, what you can recollect, what you finally can recollect might still not feel familiar, even though you might be able to bring that information in mind. You might be like, eh, that still doesn't feel familiar though. Um, basically, autonoetic consciousness is, is higher than noetic consciousness when usually it's the other way around. So, 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 I mean, it sounds like basically at a high level, you're basically just saying sedatives, dissociatives, and psychedelics, drugs that- uh, Not psychedelics, to, cannabinoids. Oh, excuse me, and cannabinoids. Yeah. I'm sorry. Sedatives, dissociatives, and cannabinoids tend to uh, disrupt memory encoding. So if you give one of these drugs to someone mm -hmm. while they're learning something, they will perform worse when you ask them to remember what they did later. Yes. And they impair both this recollection hippocampally dependent form of memory. And maybe I didn't quite specify this, but like semantic memory, which is kind of a distributed cortical representation, familiarity seems to rely on the activation of you know, the cortex, both kind of perceptual and semantic uh, nodes throughout the brain. It's kind of like the fluency with which you process that information. And so actually what's an interesting aspect of familiarity is that um, better retrieval of a familiarity-based memory actually involves less activation. So it's almost like it takes less processing and therefore now you get familiarity. So if I show you an image and then show you that image again, less activation in something like perirhinal cortex or visual cortices would actually be associated with a higher feeling of familiarity. Um, 
Whereas recollection, it involves kind of like the reactivation of all the different, you know, um, uh, involves the hippocampus as well as the reactivation of many different uh, cortices to try to recapitulate that information and relive what you kind of perceived. Um, what about, so, um, so it's probably pretty intuitive to people that, you know, if you, if you take ketamine or you drink alcohol while you're trying to learn something, you're probably not going to uh, remember what you learned quite as well. What about the opposite kind of drug that people would imagine, one that enhances memory encoding? The, the candidate here that you would naturally think of are stimulants, um, something like you know Adderall or whatever that people often take, and they often take it thinking that it's going to help them learn and remember things. So what do we actually know there? Yeah. So, um, yeah. Okay. So this was, this is interesting. So you get, you take, you know, these drugs that tend to activate the system, you know, dopamine and norepinephrine, um, again, you know, there are, there are reasons that the neuroadrenergic system can actually be less active. And, you know, this is kind of a simplification, but generally speaking, we think of these drugs as activating and, um, it turns out that it's not as easy to enhance memory encoding as people might think it is. People think that they're studying better. Um, I think it's probably more that they, one, they do maintain focus to some degree, it seems to be. They also might uh, help you restudy things over and over again um, because you're more perhaps interested in your work. Um, but, you know, it really seems to be if you have a deficit, then they work better. So if you have ADHD or if you're tired, I think that's when they work the best. Um, but yeah, they tend to enhance memory encoding. So you encode information, you know, I present to you a bunch of stimuli, I test your memory now two days later, and a lot of times you'll get this enhancement. Um, what's interesting is that we didn't really show this enhancement in this massive reanalysis and review um, in healthy adults. And there could be a couple of reasons for that. I think that there's probably a, a pretty uh, a sharp inverted U that people who are already good probably don't need a very high dose to enhance their memory. And even then maybe a low dose might still not do much or might even be counterproductive. Um, and so I think that there's probably that, like anybody who says, oh, Adderall doesn't help me. My guess is there's a dose at which that they probably could boost on it, but I don't know. I mean, I'm not telling anybody to take Adderall, you know, I don't want to say that, but, um, but one thing we did show is that it enhances your meta memory. So this is the one thing I haven't talked about yet. This is how well you understand your own memory. So, um, for example, I might encode something and, uh, later on, I might say, I've definitely seen this before. I'm unsure if I've seen it before. These drugs seem to enhance your ability to say, I've definitely seen it before when you actually have seen it before, or I definitely haven't seen this before when you haven't seen it before. Or, or, or for that matter, if you're like, I don't know if I've seen this, uh, maybe I'll say, no, I didn't see this. And then your confidence is, is low. And it, tur it turns out you have seen that before, but your confidence is low. That's also good meta memory. Cause even though you got that wrong, you kind of knew not to be very confident. And so this is what these, this is something that, that we showed was that this is, I think, to my knowledge, maybe the first time that we showed that an aspect of metacognition was enhanced, how well you understand your own cognition with these drugs. And so, yeah, I mean, that was, you know, something that, again, I think that they enhance, they can enhance different cognitive processes, including memory encoding, but it's maybe not as great as we would hope that it would be. Um, but they at least enhance perhaps your meta memory, which gives you kind of this gauge. And this is maybe is why actually, for example, people are studying while they're on, you know, um, Adderall, and then they try to maybe test themselves. They're like, you know, I don't think I know that information very well. Who knows if I'll remember it later, I should study it again, you know? And so it kind of gives you this better gauge of knowing. So even if it doesn't enhance your actual cognition, it enhances your ability to understand your own cognition, at least in terms of memory, um, whether that's true of other aspects of cognition, like perceptual decision-making or whatever is, is 
yet to be shown. Um, but that was a pretty consistent effect that we found. And, you know, just to skip up here a little bit, we showed that amphetamine also enhances your meta memory when you're, when it's on board during memory retrieval. So if you're retrieving a memory and you're like, have I seen this or not yet? Uh, I think so, you know, um, and it turns out you're wrong, but you had low confidence. That's again, a good aspect of, even though you were wrong, you were low confident. You kind of knew not to be um, too confident yeah. in an incorrect decision. So, so people so, tend to become better at gauging the confidence level or accuracy of their own memories. The, the, the correspondence between confidence and accuracy essentially is, yeah, what, 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 how we measure um, metacognition here and this, and specifically meta memory in this, this study. So, but yeah, you know, it, what we, the point though is that if you give the drug though on board during encoding, it definitely did not impair memory. The enhancements were kind of, you know, trending sometimes and other people have shown enhancements in certain areas, whether it's recollection or familiarity is still kind of unclear to me. Um, definitely some people have shown recollection based tasks. So like free recall of words, that's probably recollection hippocampally dependent recognition, not always shown. So anyways, yeah, you get some enhancement. But now if you take a drug like psychedelics, this is, I think, where things get a little interesting. So you administer a psychedelic, you show people a bunch of stimuli, you test their memory two days later. Um as I mentioned, psychedelics bind to the serotonin 2 receptor. Those tend to be mostly distributed on excitatory neurons. So you should get activation facilitation and yet you get impairments in memory. So this is one place in which they're unique where it's like, wait a minute, all these drugs that, you know, facilitate inhibition in some ways, whether they're, um, you know, cutting off excitation or they're actually facilitating your inhibitory system, they impair memory encoding. And here's psychedelics where they enhance, uh, you know, excitatory neurotransmission in some ways, and yet they're impairing memory encoding. So what's going on here? And I think if you just stopped at, you know, using a, a verbal free recall task, you know, which is here's a bunch of words, how many can you recall later? You wouldn't get down to the bottom of this. And I think that's why we need better cognitive psychologists in this field that can really dig deeper into these questions of behavior so that we don't have you know, non-experimental psychologists saying, oh, well, it's all just generalized disengagement, which is, you know, the biggest cop-out explanation I've ever seen from somebody who doesn't understand cognitive psychology. Um, and so there's a couple things here. One is that if you look at, there was a study done by um, Fred Barrett, you know, who I work with. Um, he showed that dextromethorphan and um, psilocybin, he had a very high dose of dextromethorphan. I think it was 400 milligrams, which uh, keep in mind, you maybe take maximum 30 milligrams if you're going to take something to stop your cough. Um, so quite a bit. And then he had three doses of psilocybin, a kind of on the low moderate side, a moderately high side, and then a very high dose. So 10, 20, and 30 milligrams. Um this is all per 70 kilograms, but let's forget that. This is approximately 10, 20, and 30, and then approximately 400 milligrams um, and so of dextromethorphan. And so in this study, what he showed was that if you look at just verbal free recall, so uh, again, here's a list of words. How many can you recall like 10 minutes later or something like that? And it actually, in his case, I think he did it uh, five hours later. So when most of the drug effects are gone, but you could say that some are still there, we're now trying to do the study where we actually have people test their memory one day later to make sure that there's no drug effects during retrieval. Um, that dextromethorphan, it ended up impairing very strongly episodic memory. Um, surprise, surprise, you block the NMDA receptor. If we think that LTP is kind of the scaffolding by which these episodic memories are formed. Um, and then you disrupt that scaffolding with the NMDA receptor, which is very much involved in LTP. Boom, you massively hit, you know, episodic memory. Um, 
But what was interesting was that there was a, a working memory task. Um, I'm, I'm glad that none of, probably none of my working memory friends are going to listen to this because they would get mad at me if I said that the NBAC was working memory. I agree with them. I'm just going to simplify things and say that the NBAC is working memory. Um, it's really this task that involves multiple processes, as do most, but it's not a, it's not a great working memory task is the point. But it's an aspect of working memory or executive functioning. And um, you didn't get an impairment at all. I think it wasn't significant. Like I'm sure if they'd run more subjects, whatever, they would have gotten it, but it wasn't significant. But, and so the NBAC is essentially this task in which, um, let's say I, I do a two back specifically, you have to say with every stimulus that you see, is it the same as two behind you? So I show you L, N, M, you're going to say no to the L because you had nothing before it. You're going to say no to the N, you're going to say no to the M. And then I say N, L, N, M, N, and you're going to say yes, you know, because behind that two back, there was now an end. And so this involves working memory, which means keeping things in mind, like kind of like a phone number. I give you a phone number, 555-3212, you know, and you're like, okay, 555-3212, You're holding that in mind at that time. If you can recall it the next day, now you're relying on episodic memory. If you've been recalling that information for a really long time, and I take your hippocampus out, you can still remember it. That's probably semantic memory now. So what they showed was that, yeah, essentially that the, that this NMD antagonist at a high dose dextromethorphan did not, it massively impaired episodic memory encoding. It did not really impair working memory, at least significantly. And there's actually a lot of studies I've noticed since then that also didn't show such working memory impairments from ketamine and other NMD antagonists. Again, higher doses, more subjects, I'm sure that they would. But here's the interesting thing. You now give psilocybin and the impact on episodic memory on free recall was there, but it wasn't quite strong. So just recalling words off the top of your head five hours after your psilocybin session, after you'd seen all these words under these three different doses. However, those three different, and I think the lowest dose might not even have impacted free recall, if I remember correctly. Um, but if you look at working memory, this NBAC task, even the lowest dose impacted working memory significantly. And definitely your moderately high dose and your really high dose did. So again, generalized disengagement. So it, it, it yeah. impaired working memory? Yeah, you get the, and again, I'm simplifying what working memory, executive function, whatever the end back is thought to tap into. It's not episodic memory though, um, and yeah, you get this this impairment from from psychedelics that you don't get with dissociatives that are quite as strong. Whereas it's the other way around with episodic memory, where you don't get a strong of an impact in episodic memory encoding from psychedelics, but you do with the dissociatives. This is a perfect example of why you can't say that it's generalized disengagement under psychedelics. Psychedelics are special that uh, you can't test, you know, you can't do behavioral tasks and cognitive paradigms. People just disengage. It's like, wait a minute. If people just disengage, then shouldn't just across all tasks, you get larger impairments from psychedelics than you do with something like dextromethorphan? Clearly not because you get this dissociation. But now here's where things get even more interesting. So um, you can do a recognition memory task. So now I can show you a bunch of things you've seen and things you haven't seen. And I ask you to say, did you see this? Yes or no? And you'll say yes, no, you know, to things that you've seen and not seen. And then I ask you to rate your confidence. Now, using this confidence, I can now model things like recollection and familiarity. There's other ways of modeling recollection and familiarity, but this is one way of doing it. You get an impairment of recollection, but there's no impact on familiarity, even as you escalate that dose to that massively high dose, 30 milligrams, where people are barely functional. No impact of familiarity, unlike what you see with the GABA positive allergic modulators, 15 milligrams of THC, which is, you know, moderate, but not like super high. Um, and with uh, uh, NMDA antagonists, which as you move those up the dose, yeah, you'll definitely see impairments of familiarity. In fact, what we saw here with psilocybin was potential enhancements. 
And so at the highest dose, that, that p-value started to get the lowest. The moderate dose, it wasn't quite there. The, the lowest dose, it wasn't there at all. But the point is, no impact of familiarity, if anything, numerical enhancements. My MDMA study, same thing. MDMA, we showed that um, recollection impaired. In the, actual, the original study, I did not focus on what happened at familiarity. I didn't believe it. It wasn't until I saw these psilocybin data where I was like, wait a minute, I've seen this before. And I was like, holy shit, like we might actually be getting an enhancement of familiarity that's now shown up. That numerical enhancement of familiarity, again, with MDMA, I think with one situation, depending on the stimuli, with emotional stimuli, it was trending or significant. With neutral stimuli, it wasn't there. It was, it was this weird sort of thing where emotional stimuli essentially give you, I think, better signal sometimes. Um, but yeah, again, impairment of recollection, maybe even enhancement of familiarity. The point is no other drug, when you start upping the dose, starts to enhance familiarity. If anything, you get more impairments of familiarity. So you can see a potential enhancement. And here's where it makes sense. Maybe, you know, this is again, me, just massive speculation. Familiarity is based out of the cortex, the fluency of activation through perceptual and semantic networks. That's where you have these layer five pyramidal neurons that have serotonin 2A receptors that can now drive this facilitation. However, the entorhinal cortex, the entrance to the hippocampus is now where there's these inhibitory serotonin 2A receptors. This wall of inhibition is potentially now being facilitated. And so now you're not allowing information to the hippocampus, which is going to impair your recollection, but perhaps enhance your familiarity, which is going to enhance things like noetic, that's noetic quality that one gets, these feelings of insight, deja vu, whatever, whatever. And so um, it was kind of this neat story. You know, I'm, we're waiting to see it replicated. We're, we're doing one of the studies that will hopefully show some kind of replication. Um, and we're also working with some people at Maastricht to try to see um, with a couple different psychedelics, what we end up seeing in terms of recollection and familiarity. So it's interesting. I think the point, though, is that even if you have familiarity in the absence of recollection, you still can't control that familiarity with recollection. And it can, even if you don't enhance familiarity, having too much familiarity in the absence of recollection can also result in some of these bizarre phenomena. That's kind of my working model for this. Yeah. So, so this brings up the, um, you know, the area of thinking about how psychedelics like psilocybin, for example, <laughs> acting through these 5-HD2A receptors, which are found... Uh, in abundance in these special uh, excitatory neurons in certain parts of the cerebral cortex. This brings us to the idea of you know, what is actually functionally going on in the human brain when you take something like psilocybin and how does that start to tie to some of the potential therapeutic effects? So on, I know that you've worked on this and, and others have worked on it um, over the last few years, including some recent studies looking at you know, functional imaging in the brains of people who take psilocybin versus other drugs. What do we know? Well, what's the current state of knowledge on what a dose of psilocybin will cause to happen functionally in the human brain? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think this is a, this is such a hard question. You know, you can go off of so many, there's, there's a bunch of different models that I realize that there's one that everybody, you know, is kind of bending over backwards to make their data fit. And that's, you know, Rebus, um, or the default mode network narrative is what I like to call it. Um, and you know, so I mean, maybe I should start with that one. And so there's this idea that your brain is, is, is composed of these hierarchies and, you know, that's not uh, totally absurd. You have sensory processing that goes through early visual areas, through more complex visual areas. You go from processing edges, just lines, to eventually processing, you know, a face. Um, and then, you know, these certain neurons are very responsive to faces rather than just edges. And so that makes sense. And then you have these regions that are responsive to multiple different senses. 
Um, they're not just responsive to vision. They're also responsive to audition, et cetera. And so you have these, this hierarchy in the brain and that it's the, the top of the brain's hierarchy, the default mode network. And that this is according to this model. And, um, psychedelics especially hit the default mode network and then the, the hierarchy kind of breaks down and now there's more bottom-up information processing. And so this might, you know, you might say, well, this, this makes sense that familiarity is this bottom-up process, this activation of cortical regions. I mean, as I say this, I'm just like, I can't make sense of this. I'm not even going to try to bend over backwards. Like some people do yeah, to make that. I was work. about to start asking but, questions. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, because exactly, because familiarity, you can say, okay, well, there's certain perceptual fluency activation, but as I mentioned, it's also very much involved in semantic concept activation, which is a high level. Well, and this is where that this model breaks down, actually, is that when they talk about different, so so Robin Card Harris is not an experimental psychologist, he's not a cognitive psychologist, he's, um, uh, you know, he's he's mentioned things on Twitter that kind of talk down on cognition, and he's also a, a you know trained in Freudian psychology. I think he has a master's in like psychoanalysis, hmm. and so. Um, you know, Freudian psychology, cognitive psychology don't exactly get along. And so um, one difference is that cognitive psychology takes empirical observations and manipulations and typically what we call science and, um, you know, tries to uh, uh, look for consistencies. Freudian psychology starts with ideas and tries to look for them in patients. Um, and that's, you know, basically what Freud did was he, until he found the patient that proved his idea, he didn't, you know, yeah, he, that's what he started with the idea and he kept trying to look for it in patients that proved his idea. Um, you want to bang your mother. And he kept finding the patients that, you know, wanted to bang their mothers. Um, and so, you know, um, so that's so anyways, I think that there's, there's but one issue is that if you take proper behavior, these proper cognitive processes, Rebus breaks down this idea. So one idea is that your lower level processes are facilitated while your higher level processes are impaired. The lower level processes are at least unimpaired or facilitated. And so, um, you know, well, one could say, well, the perceptual aspects of familiarity, those are enhanced. The perceptual fluency is enhanced, but the semantic fluency isn't. Well, semantic priming has been shown to be enhanced by psychedelics. Um, there's also a, you know, the, the example that they'll always use in Rebus is that, well, you have, um, so contrast processing versus motion processing. Contrast comes first in the visual hierarchy. You're, you're a vision person. Is that right? Uh, I believe so. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, you know, I think V one or two does contrast, then it takes essentially yeah, contrast is MT. A, very, a very basic thing that, that most organisms with visual, a visual apparatus of any kind can, can do. Yeah. But so is motion processing, but it does seem to come later. Right. And so MT area MT comes later on in the stream versus, um, you know, contrast. And so what they'll show is that motion processing is impaired by psychedelics, but contrast isn't. Actually, what's a really cool finding is I found one paper with alcohol that finds the flip of that. And now that makes that a lot more interesting. If you think about it, you're like, oh, what if all drugs just do that? And you're like, wait a minute, alcohol actually impairs contrast more than motion. Okay, now this makes this interesting. But um, but that's one example where that does work, where it's like the higher level uh, process is now impaired compared to the lower level process. But you could think of pre-pulse inhibition. This is a single, uh, uh, let's say a, a puff of air to your eye um, or a loud sound, let's say, and then if I play a second loud sound in close um, sequentially, that first sound is going to inhibit the response to the second sound because it's almost, it's almost like a very rudimentary form of learning. It's like the second sound is like, all right, I already heard that first one. I know that the, there could be a next one coming up. It becomes predictive in some ways 
to inhibit that response, um, almost like a form of familiarity, let's say. Well, prepulse inhibition is impaired by psychedelics, especially when the, um, the distance between the two pulses is near. And so um, that's a very low level form of learning. And that's one of the first things Mark Geyer and others have been showing that is like the psychedelics impair this. It's like, okay, um, other forms of low level learning that are now being impaired versus enhanced. Like, I don't think fear conditioning is enhanced, but yet extinction learning is. And so they'll use that as an, oh, extinction learning gets enhanced by psychedelics. It's like, what about fear conditioning? I don't think that's enhanced. That's a low level form of learning. Um, and so it just becomes this really weird thing that, you know, I, I don't know what's a low level and higher level and a lot of forms of behavior that can uh, really, you know, explain some of these effects. And then they'll say, oh, cognitive flexibility, which cognitive flexibility is probably an extremely high level. They're like, oh, this gets enhanced, which by the way, it doesn't. Um, it's unfortunate that this has now been written into the literature that it's now been shown in animals and in humans that acutely psychedelics impair cognitive flexibility. So your ability to adaptively switch between cognitive operations in a changing environment. And this is probably a high level process that actually is one reason why I think humans are successful is that we have high cognitive flexibility. We can go from, you know, attention to outward world. Okay. It, 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 internal attention, you know, let's, let's revisit our models, outward, internal, you know, all these different ways of sort of thinking that can allow us to solve different problems and acutely psychedelics that that is a high level process that psychedelics do impair. So if any of that goes with the model, but oddly enough, they say in their papers this, oh, but psychedelics enhance unconventional cognitive, uh, unconventional cognitive processes like cognitive flexibility, a high level process. And the reason they say that is because antagonism of those receptors in animals has been shown to impair cognitive flexibility. So the inference is if you agonize the receptors, it should enhance them. And yet that has not been shown to be true. Um, so this is my take on Rebus anyways, is why I don't totally buy it. Uh, but from a brain level, maybe just let me go real quick and say this. The idea is that you should get larger effects in these areas that it does turn out that these higher level association cortices that process multiple senses and not just visual, you know, cortex and whatnot, they do have more serotonin 2A receptors generally. It's worth mentioning that compared to the rest of the brain, sensory areas still have a lot of um, serotonin 2A receptors. But the point that they like to make is that, oh yeah, you get a decrease in default mode network functional connectivity or you get entropy in the default mode network. That is the network that a lot of times gets the lowest, the, the smallest effect. And in fact, in their LSD data, the largest effects that you get on uh, decreases in functional connectivity or increases in entropy are in sensory networks. And the smallest effects are in the default mode network sometimes. And, and this has now been shown across, you know, I think not, uh, Natasha Mason had some psilocybin data, Matthias Leichty has some LSD data. And on, across all of these studies, it's like the default mode network is not the locus of yeah. the largest effects Let's, and sensory areas do get nearly, if not larger effects, which complete opposite of what you'd expect yeah. if the hierarchy is broken and sensory areas are now supposed to be facilitated in some ways. Let, yeah. Let's, let's back up for people for a minute. So can you, let, let's answer, see if you can answer three questions or, or describe what yeah. the, the state of thinking is here. So one, just, just what is the default mode network in, in very simple terms Two, what is the effect that psilocybin tends to have and how well does it replicate in terms of how it's impacting the default mode network? And lastly, is psilocybin and are other psychedelics unique in the way they affect the default mode network or do other drugs do something similar? This is great. I'm glad you mentioned that last point because, you know, one of the things I've been trying to say throughout this, you know, and, and in this whole paper, the reason why we kind of brought up this discussion is the idea is, is there something unique about different types of drugs, right? Um, so, 
Okay, so the first question is, what's the default? So the default mode network is actually basically the episodic memory network. Recollection, maybe more so than anything, um, if you include the hippocampus, the posterior hippocampus especially. So they form this, some people refer to it as the posterior medial network, but it's involved in episodic memory. Um, it's not your ego, uh, your sense of self. You know, I think uh, Phineas Gage had a, uh, a rod that went through, especially I think dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, it's not part of the default mode network. He's, his sense of self was certainly changed. Um, although, you know, you could argue that it, it went through multiple areas, but um, you're, it's a, the default mode network is involved in various areas that have nothing to do with the opposite of your sense of self, which is the processing of others and what they're thinking, theory of mind. That's essentially the, uh, you know, the opposite of your sense of self. Um, it's involved in future simulation. It's involved in, I think the one main, one kind of takeaway is it's involved in, um, kind of internal models of the world, I think might be a better way of describing maybe what the default mode or could be doing. And even then I'm sure somebody could prove me wrong and give me an example of where that's not true, but it's definitely not your ego. Um, and so that's kind of a weird thing. And, and um, it's certainly not the case that your id is subcortical structures, because I think that's another thing that kind of is proposed by the entropic brain. Uh, these subcortical structures I should mention are not there are lots of connected to these other networks. As I mentioned, the posterior hippocampus is connected very much so to your default mode network um, and is almost part of that same sort of network. Um, you know, they co-evolved with different areas of your cortex. And so there's nothing primitive about your, you know, your thalamus isn't necessarily more primitive than other areas. Um, so, okay, so that's what the default mode network might do. Your second question is what do psychedelics do to the default mode network is that right or yeah, does, yeah. Does psilocybin reliably affect the default mode network in, in a particular direction and that is one thing that does turn out to be true so now there's been several data sets resting not even just resting state data sets but they do show that psychedelics decrease functional connectivity within the default mode network um and that, that does turn out to be true. That you also get decreases in functional connectivity in other networks pretty reliably, other higher level uh, cortical networks, such as, and, you know- And what does that mean to now. decrease functional connectivity? Ah, so that would be, you could think about your network. So your brain's communicating, you know, how your different regions of your brain are communicating to each other. They might now, uh, you know, uh, they form these networks. That's kind of how you describe a network is, generally there's more communication within this network than outside of it. And um, you now get less communication within this network. And so um, essentially what it really boils down to is just a correlation between the, uh, uh, activity of the, the activity of two regions over time. So two regions are co-activated, high functional connectivity. If they're doing their own thing and not talking, you know, they're not talking to each other. One, at, one region's up, the other region's down, et cetera. It's a bad example. One region's up, the other region's only sort of up. Then you're going to have a uh, not very high functional connectivity. So it, it has been reliably shown, but here's the thing. If you're going to call that ego dissolution as some do, you should then expect other ego dissolving drugs. And this now brings us to other drugs. What do they do to the default mode network? Well, our most similar example to psychedelics would probably be the dissociatives and ketamine. The great thing about ketamine is it's been studied quite a bit um, because it's you know legal and you can get these big studies. You can get people who aren't invested in the psychedelic effects of ketamine to do these studies, et cetera, et cetera. And um, it's, the studies are almost certainly better quality than our psychedelic studies. So they have larger samples. They'll have between different um, universities. So you now have multi-site. So it's not just specific to one area and maybe one set of researchers priming people to do something or whatever it is. 
ketamine, there's been five studies I've seen resting state ketamine. Two have shown decreases in default mode network connectivity. Two have shown no effect. One has shown increases in default mode network connectivity. So that's already a problem, um, if you ask me. And you know, I think one reason, which you know, I don't want to go into this too much, is the idea of resting state, where people do whatever they want in the scanner under a drug. You're now, especially with like 20 people, you're getting a random sample of cognitive operations in one sample, a bunch of people might think of their mom, and they're going to now get one pattern of activity that's going to interact with drug effects. Another sample is going to perhaps be paranoid with the researcher wants, and that's going to interact with drug effects. Another sample is going to listen to those scanner sounds really yeah. intently. Maybe they're going to get more that's a, sensory that's a good, changes. That's a good point, here. because correct me if I'm wrong, in a lot of these brain imaging studies, Right, you're, you're comparing what's going on in the brain in two different conditions. And condition one is often the so-called resting state, the baseline state. They just sort of sit there and do nothing, quote unquote. Um, but what you're saying is instead of, it's not like you know if you've got 10 people in a study and they're all in their baseline resting state, they're not all in the same state. One of them's remembering what they did at the grocery store yesterday. The other one's thinking about how nervous they are in this claustrophobic image scanner. And you're sort of treating all of those distinct cognitive states as one common baseline almost. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the thing. There's no baseline to the brain, you know? And so that's the, the issue. And then here's the, here's the funny thing. It's you're comparing while they're on drugs and they can't fall asleep because these drugs prevent people from falling asleep. You're now comparing this situation where they're doing whatever they want things that they actually have the capacity to do when they're sober too. Let's keep that in mind. You can think about your mother when you're sober. You can be paranoid what the researcher wants out of you when you're sober. You can pay attention to the scanner sounds when you're sober. And now you're comparing that to a situation when you're on placebo, when you're actually probably resting. And in fact, 40% of samples will fall asleep, at least according to one study. So what are you really comparing here? You're comparing an aroused state to, to an unaroused state. You're comparing cognitive operations for which people have the capacity when they're sober to a situation when they're actually resting, even if they don't fall asleep. And then you tell people to close their eyes during some of these things, of course, they're going to fall asleep when they're sober. So it's just like this ill-fated comparison, if you ask me. Um, but okay, so there's that. Now, what about other drugs? Amphetamine and alcohol have both been shown to decrease default mode network connectivity. So the default mode network tends to come online when people aren't performing externally directed attention sort of tasks. Well, when the default mode network decreases its activity, that's when you're performing externally directed tasks. Well, guess what you're gonna do when you're under the effects of, of drugs? Amongst all that random amalgamation of cognitive operations, you're probably gonna more likely direct your attention outwards occasionally here and there. That's gonna result in more decreases in default mode network connectivity. Even if you're drunk, you're probably gonna do that more frequently than just you know introspect and just sit there and think internally. And so, so, so you're saying, so, so just to make sure I got it. You're saying that a reliable result is that stimulants, for example, decrease default mode network activity. One study has shown that. And there's been okay. one study that shows alcohol that I've found. Maybe there could be more, but yeah, that's what I have, I have seen thus far. Yeah. But certainly uh, you, no one would yeah. ever conclude that, you know, taking a stimulant is causing ego dissolution. <laughs> Of course not. If anything, it's ego strengthening. You know, I think same thing with alcohol. People can become egotistical, let's say, and so it's it's just this like, what does this even mean? And I think you know, um, Robin himself has backed off of some of the default mode network stuff, and it just sucks that he doubled down in Rebus um, when his LSD data didn't really show that. Now people are always talking about the default mode network, including scientists who you know they don't they're not usually brain. Actually, even some of the brain scientists are now focusing on the default mode network, and it's just like, god damn it, like. This is an unfortunate side to you know uh, what we've what we've gone through here, um, but maybe here. Look, 
if you gave me a lesion patient that has, let's say, a hub of the default mode network taken out, like the posterior cingulate or the medial prefrontal cortex, and you give them a psychedelic and most of the effects are gone, but this doesn't happen if you have a lesion of dorsolateral prefrontal cortex or the dorsal anterior cingulate, I'm going to eat my words. I'm going to be like, you know what? You're right. <laughs> the default mode network does seem to be the most important thing to psychedelic drug effects. But until that happens, I'm, yeah, at the moment, the fMRI data do not speak to this default mode network account. Um, and so, you know, I can go into other types of models and things that could be happening. One idea is, you know, just this idea of general plasticity increasing, and maybe this plasticity is associated with weird phenomena. Um, I think that, you know, you have your thalamus as well, that um, seems to be, it gates certain types of information. You know, you have kind of top-down processes that prevent certain things from getting in. For example, you don't want every single pixel in this wall to be seen as all the colors that are actually reflecting off. And you want to see kind of a solid wall. Maybe that now gets disrupted um, because the thalamus processes sensory information. And so there's this idea that you can get it actually involves disinhibition. Um, I'm debating whether or not to go into that um, because now we might be going off topic from the memory stuff, but you know, up yeah, to you. I, I don't think we really need to go there, yeah. but um, I don't know. Can you just say a little bit as we wrap up here about, um, you know, what's going on in your world or the, or the psychedelic research world to do with the effects of psychedelics on memory? Are there any questions you're pursuing right now or any interesting uh, pursuits from other folks? Yeah. So I guess there's, well, I don't know about what others are doing, but yeah, we're trying to, we want to replicate that effect of do psychedelics enhance the encoding of cortically dependent familiarity based memories, you know, while impairing recollection based memories. Um, I think something else that was interesting that came out, this is something that was shown in animals is if you, it co if you administer a psychedelic immediately after encoding, you can actually enhance the proxy to a familiarity-based memory. This is a novel object recognition. Um, and recently it was shown, I might've been a reviewer on this paper, that uh, there's this you know, interesting finding where they talk about what happens the next day after psychedelics and, oh, you get this enhancement of memory. And I was like, wait a minute, actually, no, that's not exactly what you showed. What they had people do was they um, had a grid. It was maybe like a four by a four by four grid with um, cards and, you know, you flip over one card and that's the, the can you flip over another card and it's something else. And you got to find where the other can is. And you have several trials of learning this to like, you know, uh, learning this to a point where it becomes almost familiarity based and not recollection based, you know, then they administered LSD afterwards. And then the following day, they then had enhancements of that task. That's basically the animal version of novel object recognition. In other words, administering a drug post-encoding, a psychedelic might enhance the consolidation of some of these memories, which is a crazy idea that administering post-encoding is going to enhance. That's been shown only with GABA-A positive allosteric modulators. So this is a very weird thing that this is where, again, if you know, you might hate the way I group sedatives altogether, Ambient benzos and alcohol. If you study on them, you're not going to remember anything the next day for your test. If you study and take them immediately afterwards, you'll remember more for your test than had you not taken them at all. Let's forget about hangovers for a second. But yeah, that'll that's like a, it's known as retrograde facilitation. It's one of the craziest effects. What are the people talk about psychedelics? Sedatives have some really cool effects, like retrograde facilitation, waking people up out of comas. That's a crazy thing that happens with benzos and ambient. Um, yeah, it's, it's, you know, and then of course you have a GABA agonist that have their own hallucinogenic effects. So um, yeah, anyway, psychedelics might do that. That's not been shown. And so there's a really simple explanation for get, uh, retrograde facilitation, which probably isn't the whole story. If you take something after you encode, 
you're going to block new information from coming in that can interfere with the old information. Mm. So it's been shown if I learn list A and then I learn list B, list B is going to interfere with my memory for list A. Had I just sat there and done nothing at all, list A is going to be remembered better. If I do list A and then I can't remember anything that I learned from list B, well, it can't interfere with list A, right? So that was a simple explanation. However, there's some really weird things that happen that can't fully explain that. One, a drug like THC, it doesn't work. THC also impairs memory. It doesn't work. Um, Two, you get disproportionate memory for certain types of stimuli, like emotional information sometimes. Uh, Three, you get enhancements of sleep-based consolidation processes. So there's some of these stabilization processes that exist during sleep. This has only been shown with ambient. So I don't know if it it shows up with alcohol and and benzodiazepines and you don't need sleep for this to work. Um, But at least you can show that you get enhanced um, sleep spindles and the coupling of sleep spindles to slow waves. And so those are usually associated with enhancements in, in episodic memory. So anyways, it's, it's psychedelics, who knows what they're doing, but there's this post encoding psychedelic that could enhance your memory. And in fact, what we're seeing with familiarity, it might just be because psychedelics are lingering into the consolidation phase that it might have nothing to do with the encoding effect. And so that would be something I'm super interested in. I think the last thing with episodic memory that I would want to do is look at their effects, uh, psychedelics effects during memory retrieval. So most drugs when administered during retrieval will increase false memories. So you will falsely say with high confidence that you saw something that you never actually did, including very crazy stimuli that you would normally think that I would remember that, you know, like a, a, a picture of a dying baby. That's literally a stimulus that we've used before. Um, and you'll say, yeah, I saw a picture of a dying baby. No, you didn't. Wouldn't you have thought that you would remember that stimulus? And you'll say with high confidence, right? And so that shows up. The, the THC has been the one to show that the most. So um, this is kind of gets at the importance of dissociating drug effects between encoding and retrieval and consolidation and whatnot. The study, there was a study back in the 70s, 1970, I think, that showed if you administer THC just during retrieval, you will get an increase in how often you're going to false alarm to um, certain types of stimuli. You'll be like, oh, yeah, I'm more likely to say, yes, I saw the stimuli when I ever actually did. After that, most studies administered THC during memory encoding and then tested their memory shortly afterwards while, st- while THC was still on board during retrieval. They'll get impairments in true memory. You're less able to say what you've actually seen. You'll get increases in false memory. And for reasons I can't go into, but it involves signal detection theory. If your memory is really bad, you'll get impairments in true memory and increases in false memory because you're just going to be guessing, right? And if you're just guessing, you're going to say yes to some things you've seen, but also haven't seen, you know, and then you're going to say no to things that you have seen, but also haven't seen. And so that false memory effect was basically forgotten about. And people were like, "Uh uh-oh, you know, this is just all due to this impairment of true memory. And then we came along later and then we showed just during retrieval, if you give THC, you get this increase in false memories. It shows up across multiple tasks, high confidence, false alarms. People will use the high confidence button. Um, And we forgot, we didn't realize that there was a paper from 1970 and I stupidly didn't cite it. And then somebody sent it to me later and I was like, oh shit, I'm an idiot. Um, And so anyways, it's important to dissociating drug effects from encoding and retrieval, but it turns out that shows up with amphetamine. We saw trending effects with um, MDMA. I regret doing this modeling and saying that MDMA might impact true memory when really I think what was happening was that modeling approach is sensitive to false memories. And if you get too much false memories, you get a decrease in a true memory parameter. It's you know, again, complicated to explain, but again, we see this trending trend towards increased false memories with MDMA, um, especially for high confidence, false memories. And, uh, yeah, you see amphetamine. And then my guess is with, um, something like psychedelics, you would as well, which suggests, again, we should be cautious with psychedelics and this idea of repressed memories is mostly garbage. And so psychedelics might instead enhance the ability to retrieve false memories or form false memories. And, you know, this is something that I'd, I'd like to test in the future. 
Awesome. Well, Manoj Das, thank you for your time. Yep. Yeah. yeah, I guess it's been two hours, man. <laughs> All right. Have a good one, man.